You want a snow, speed? A tube? It's going round. Who's got a mic besides me? Come on. Somebody join in. Hey! Okay.
Welcome to Paul or Nothing, the place to get all of your Paul all of the time. Join me, your host, Sam Wiles, as we discover the history, the music, and the man behind it all, Paul McCartney. To get in contact with the show, email us at paulmccartneypod at gmail.com. Hello. And welcome to the podcast. The reason I'm using the generic title of the podcast and not going straight into specifics is because this is, quote, my first swap cast. Me and my guest are going to be swapping this audio for each other's shows. I've never done this before. This is our first outing here at Paul or Nothing. Fortunately, my guest today has done a couple of these before, so we should be in safe hands. As half of you out there should already know, my name is Sam Wiles. I'm the host of Paul or Nothing a Paul McCartney and sometime Beatle podcast, the place to get all of your Paul all of the time. And as we all know, every McCartney needs a Lennon and vice versa. I first heard my guest today on one of my absolute favourite podcasts, which is the incomparable Those Conspiracy Guys, where he was discussing the life and more importantly, the untimely death of John Lennon. And after that episode, I immediately began to devour his content and For some of you, this will be the show you're listening to, which is Glass Onion on John Lennon. And even though I'm only about 10 episodes deep, I'm going to confidently rank it amongst my favourite wider Beatle community podcasts. For a laugh, I just thought I'd reach out to him. And fortunately, he got back to me right away. And like Lennon himself, he had an instant enthusiasm for the project. And here we are only a few days later. We're both here to bring the worlds of Lennon and McCartney together once more. And I feel incredibly lucky to speak with him. Everyone, your host, my guest, Anthony Rattuno. What's going on, my friend? Hello, right, mate. How are you? <laughs> I'm really good. I'm really excited to do this. So am I. I'm a, I'm a bit tired, but I'm going to buzz off your natural energy. So between us, we'll get there. You do the music and I'll do the lyrics. Definitely. Oh, uh, yeah. Start with a lame joke. Sorry. Yes. Or it'll, it'll be like one of those two-part McCartney songs where I'm like, Paul, can you help me with the middle eighth? Something like yeah. that. Yeah. By the way, a swap cast is, is exactly the same as your normal show, except the guest is supposed to do a bit more work. Oh, really? I wish I'd known that. I probably would have done less. <laughs> I always like to start these things with the most British question ever. But uh, where are you calling from and what's the weather like? Um, Tunbridge Wells in Kent. It's, uh, yeah, a bit overcast. It's the kind of day I like when I'm inside, actually. I kind of like just looking out the window at this kind of day. A bit grey, but yeah, not too bad. It's been sunny recently, so break it up a little bit. So for everyone on my show who might not know who you are, I just thought that you might be able to explain your show and let them know what it's about. I fortunately have listened and gone ahead for your introductory episode. That means I'm all caught up. But for those out there who don't know what Glass Onion on John Lennon is, could you give us the rundown? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, Well, I've been kind of a... John Lennon slash Beatles, uh, obsessive fan, whatever you want to call it, for about 30 years. And I procrastinated a lot. I consume a lot of podcasts. And um, and I procrastinated until about January. So coming up for a year and a half. It's just a deep dive, really. I have some psychology knowledge from uh, studying at college. So I kind of bring that in. Had some amazing guests. So I managed to have two of the Quarrymen, which was John Lennon's uh, skiffle group from... Uh, his teens mm. and um yeah i mean it's you know what it's like it, it takes some time to grow an audience and everything but uh it's it's an incredible journey and i'm still learning stuff you know i mean i have to quite a lot of the knowledge is already there but i have to read books as well you know if an author's coming out with a book and stuff so um 
or well, some, don't always read a book. Sometimes I read twenty pages and skillfully bluff it. But yes, yes, you know how it is. For it's anyone who's listening, let me think of a person. Ken McNabb, for example. I did read your book, Ken, and he knows it. Uh, and the majority I do. But other ones, I mean, we just branch off into interesting areas. We, we've actually got some exciting ones coming up. I've kind of stockpiled. I don't know exactly when this show is going to be going out, but got one about politics, one about drugs, uh, just about just editing as we're talking today. One about um, the John Lennon and Bob Dylan relationship. So um, yeah, it's an amazing journey. You know, it's uh, you'll know Sam. Editing is probably the hardest thing, perhaps. Once you've done it, you know, and it's out there, it's very satisfying. So yeah, Glass Onion on John Lennon, and Glass Onion is the name of a Beatles song from the White Album that was predominantly written by John Lennon. So that's the title. On my dad's iPod, like the original one, when I was very, very young, Glass Onion was the very opening song on his unique Beatles playlist so I'd always come across it a lot earlier than probably most other people would a favorite song of yours is it or just a good title just a good title I think the reason I chose it is because as we've discussed on the show there were so many John Lennon's you know he was a rocker then he was a stoner and then he was into psychedelia then he went sort of back to being a rocker and then he got into other drugs and he he had all these different incarnations but Glass Onion just the image it seems very quintessential John Lennon it's just a weird image a juxtaposition of two things that not, don't normally go together. So it's not my favourite song, but I definitely like it. You know, it's definitely... See, I kind of liked it as, like, he's got many transparent layers. And I was like, oh, I get it. The imagery is very yes. clever. Yeah. Yeah, well, of course, originally it's his title, Glass Onion. Presumably he came up with that. So I don't know exactly. That song's got some stuff about cast iron shore. And it's got, uh, it's just a juxtaposition of images, really. And that kind of sums up John Lennon to some extent for me. Now, as far as I'm aware, you, you are the only Lennon podcast that's going, which is kind of mad if that is true. Yeah, well, that was, uh, yeah, that was kind of the niche that I found because it's funny, um, as I said, I've been consuming podcasts for a, a good 10 years and every now and again I'd go to iTunes and I'd go John Lennon and I think someone must have done a John Lennon podcast and I did eventually find one i don't know if you've come across uh, the name jude kessler um rings a bell yeah yeah i know you're acquainted with kit o'toole now i mean mm-hmm. they're, those they're sort of i guess the the leading ladies in the in the beatles podcast author scene but the queens um, yeah the queen well yeah kit is officially officially uh the queen of all beatles media uh, shout out to kit <laughs> Get out to Kit, yeah, yeah, we've worked together a few times. Anyway, um, so Jude Kessler had a show called The John Lennon Hour, and it's still on iTunes, but she hasn't put out a new episode since 2015. Like, she's got another show now. So, yeah, as far as I know, it's the only active one, which I can't believe. And I was really pleased because I thought, you know, I love the Beatles, but John Lennon is the one that I've always been the most drawn to. So I, you know, I found the niche and did it. And it's been amazing. <laughs> well, in the vein of all the fake news that's going around, I'm just going to say that I am the only Paul McCartney podcast out there as well. Do not search for other ones. Um, yeah, definitely the only one. The other ones don't exist. Yeah. No, um, they're just auto-generated thumbnails, I think. <laughs> it is weird, though, because I don't think I've seen any George Harrison ones, and you definitely don't see any Ringo-dedicated podcasts. And Ringo no. does have enough content that you definitely could do a podcast but it's that magical mixture of quality and quantity that Paul definitely has. Whereas with John, I'm guessing you couldn't just do an album review show 
you know, purely per se. And that's why I am quite interested in your show in that sense, because mm. you're going into psychology and, mm. you know, drugs and politics and stuff. And all of that really does expand the, the kind of impact that uh, John Lennon can have and the scope you can talk about. I mean, I think one of the, one of the main things is that, I mean, as it stands now, I'm, I'm not monetizing the podcast and I don't have anyone, you know, telling me what to put in it. And I kind of, one of the things I'm very big on is the, the fact that if I can go to psychology just for a second, we impose a lot of rules on each other, you know? I know you're quite skeptical about a lot of stuff David Icke says, and I, I am as well, but one thing, <laughs> but uh, if I can uh, just tell you one thing that I think definitely makes sense. Uh, he talks about how um, we're uh, worse than sheep in a way, because we don't even need a sheepdog, we police each other. And it's interesting that, you know, there's a lot of rules in society, but we start imposing them on each other. And uh, but I thought, as long as it's broadly about John Lennon, I can literally do anything I want. And I mean, the shows are about John Lennon, but, and I know you, you agree with this, Sam, uh, tangents uh, can be a, a wonderful thing. Mm-hmm. You know, a conversation could go in a place that you're not expecting. So, yeah. Oh, I mean, I've got so many obscure little uh, tangents for McCartney that I've got planned. Things like, Be- like uh, Beatles Rock Band and Live 8 and stuff like that. Things... Mm things that you don't see out there. I do try and create some unique content out there. I suppose I should, for the benefit of your audience as well, just explain what my podcast is. Oh, sorry. Yes. Yes, please. Before we go too far into this, Paul or Nothing essentially started out of my own Beatle breakup, as it were. A friend of mine, Tom, shout out to Tom. We did a show called Down in the Hole, which is a Tom Waits podcast. Go and check that out. We've actually come back and uh, reunited since. But uh, he he went off and did a podcast about the UK battle rap scene. And that really wasn't my scene at, at all. And I realised quite swiftly that there really wasn't anyone besides Tom Waits and the Beatles that I knew massively in depth. So I thought, how can I, how can I use that disadvantage to my advantage? And so through my interest uh, and always kind of natural love for Paul, I thought, OK, I could do a McCartney podcast where I'm discovering the albums with the audience. Like I say, I'm not a complete... I, I don't know all of these albums. I am yet, at time of recording, to listen to Off The Ground, his first mm. 90s album. I'm not sure if looking forward is the correct phrase, but I'm definitely mm. uh, I'm definitely expecting an experience with that album. But yeah, I do a lot of interviews as well. I do film reviews, album reviews. I've had Lawrence Juber on. Uh, I've had a lot of yeah. authors on, Paul DeNoye and stuff like that. And recently, I'm just trying to expand and get more podcasters on as well. So I was I was so mm. glad that that uh, you wanted to get on because it's the people who make this kind of content that really know how to have the kind of conversations that I like to have, really, which, like you say, can go anywhere. I've definitely had podcasts that I've just had to go, you know what, this is just generic chat number one. I can't <laughs> even write down how many topics we cover, but let's go for it, eh? Yeah. One thing I did like about your show and I kind of somewhat saw parallels with mine, is that there's a, a delightful air of counterculturalism in it. And did you like inevitably set out to make the podcast that way, or was it just that any podcast you make would end up that way naturally? What kind of things... Can you give me an example? I think I know what you mean, but... In the sense that I don't feel like it's the same sanitised content I hear on a lot of other Beatle podcasts. There are so many right. shameless hagiographies of the Beatles out there that don't seem to like I'm not looking for salacious hatchet jobs or anything <laughs> like that where I'm just looking for rent boy stories and stuff like that. <laughs> 
well, for example, I saw a review on my iTunes the other day, and it was one star. Uh, I will never be listening to a podcast that uses the word fuck. And I was like, oh, come on. You can't even, that's not even giving me a chance there. <laughs> I might think I'm a little more irreverent than the average Beatles podcaster, but hey. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think there is a reason, because um, about 10 years ago, maybe a bit more, I sort of got into what's called alternative media and it does sort of cross over with the conspiracy world. And again, it runs a huge gamut from the sort of quite crazy stuff. They always, they always use flat earth as a sort of straw man, as you know, but then sort of realizing that, you know, mainstream news is not really giving you, is not telling you even a fraction of the story in my opinion. So I think that really comes out. And, um, I mean, uh, the Beatles community, podcast community, are generally all lovely people. I haven't had one mm-hmm. neg- negative experience. But I do think that there's there's a bit of scope, because you're right. It's things like drugs, you know. I mean, we've just done a drug show. Um, it was with uh, Tom Hunyadi, actually, from one of those podcasts that doesn't exist. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, mate. Sorry, sorry. Uh, he came on the show, and he was very open about it. But it's very difficult to find anyone to do a show about that with, because... Yeah, there do seem to be a few areas they don't want to go to. And then, of course, I did the Mark Chapman stuff. And I have a slight issue with forums and things that say, I don't want to, don't glorify that man, don't make him famous, basically mean don't mention him. But mm-hmm. I found his story, obviously, it's awful. You know, not I don't have any less feelings about how awful the crime was. I also think understanding people might be a good idea. And obviously, psychology, in his case, the psychology of him is so incredibly complex, as was John Lennon's, that I thought that was interesting. And then I did um, episode 36, and I did an addendum, which was going through the notes. And I think one of the things I do on my show is personalized. I don't really see other Beatles podcasters doing this, actually talking about their own lives and their own sort of maybe vulnerabilities and things. Mm-hmm. So I did this kind of confessional show. And, and I'll admit, you know, a lot of it was for myself. You know, it was very, uh, what's the word, cathartic. Mm-hmm. But I think... Yeah, counter, sort of uh, alternative, more personal. I think there was a scope for that. And since John Lennon is the subject, and that's supposedly what John Lennon is all about, then, you know, you need a John Lennon podcast to do that, you know? So, uh, yeah. Good question, sir. <laughs> Thank really you. Good. So at the start of these things, I like to gauge people's base level and their foundations in terms of their Beatle fandom. So I'm going to hit you with a few quick-fire questions. Okay. Apologies if you've, uh, well, if your audience has heard any of this stuff before, but favourite Beatles album? Favourite Beatles album. I mean, I can't give one. If I had to, uh, I'm going to be a bit canny here. My Desert Island Beatles album would be the White Album because it's got so much on it. So you could spend longer listening to it. <laughs> that is a logical answer, 100%. That's a good, uh, it's very logical, yeah. I probably would just buy a short head, the White Album, because I think the 50th anniversary thing that came out obviously two years ago mm-hmm. i think that really heightened the album more than the other one so just say the white album by a nose followed by something like rubber rubber soul or revolver and then pepper and abbey road just underneath that <laughs> so, yeah i've recently been bringing up uh, hard day's night possibly mm. up to my top three much to my best friend's kind of shock horror <laughs> we all have very uh, strong Be- Beatle opinions in my little social group, and 
one of my friends, uh, he gets constant grief for saying Let It Be is the best album. And almost every single social occasion, after about two beers, it immediately gets to, look, Chris, Let It Be is not the best album. And it's like, oh, not this again. <laughs> I mean, Let It Be is an amazing collection of songs. Though. You know, maybe people don't like the arrangements, but in that collection of songs, you know, you've got Let It Be, Long and Winding Road, Get Back, Don't Let Me Down, uh, Two of Us. You know, it's actually a great set of songs. I think there were just issues with how it was made. But um, just to say about Hard Day's Night, I think really you can't compare Hard Day's Night with Abbey Road because it's just apples and oranges. Mm -hmm. They perfected. Hard Day's Night is a perfect pop album. It's about as close to perfection as you're going to get. So that was the highlight probably of that bit of their career. And then Rubber Soul and Revolver was probably the highlight of their middle career. Yeah. And then Abbey Road's probably the highlight of their later career. So there's so much, you know, there's just so many Beatles, you know. <laughs> when you've got a band that reinvents themselves every six mm. months, you know, there's, there's no wrong, wrong answer, really. Yeah. What is the most underrated Beatles song? Underrated Beatles song? Uh, well... There's one, um, I must say, have you listened much to these isolated vocal tracks and things? On YouTube and stuff, yeah. Yeah. I'll tell you, that was, a, that was another thing which just brought these songs alive. Because when you hear the isolated guitar, for example, you, um, you hear little bits of guitar that get buried in the final mix. Mm -hmm. and it's suddenly, oh, I'm hearing new Beatles sounds again. And I'll tell you what, this is not my favourite song, but Sun King... It's obviously a very slight song. It's only got a few lyrics. I love those cod Spanish lyrics because I just came back from... Carousel, yeah. i just living in Spain. The best one is que can eat it because it's que, que as in what in Spanish, but que can eat it. That's just brilliant. Pure John Lennon. That song sounds amazing. When you hear the isolated uh, tracks, that was obviously based on a Fleetwood Mac song called Albatross, mm -hmm. the first incarnation of Fleetwood Mac, the Peter Green, which I love. I'd probably say something like, well, Revolution 9, that's kind of another story because it's not really a song, but did a whole show on that. That was still my favourite show I've ever done. It's a fantastic episode. And I've always loved Revolution 9. So have I. C kind of a bit of my shtick is that I'm a little bit of a devil's advocate, contrarian hipster at times. But mm -hmm. I've always loved Revolution 9. I remember being in university, putting it on, smoking a jazz cigarette and... Mm -hmm. 
And I was like, oh, this is absolutely awesome. And then yeah. even like my most avant-garde and snooty friends didn't seem to like it. I was like, you are, you are missing out on one of the key Beatles songs, really. Yeah, I mean, I did a, like I said, I did an episode in back in December. Mm. And I think that was really the turning point, actually, for my podcast, because I really personalised. And I thought, just do it, man, just do it. And I put all these sound clips in and I talked about it. Other ones... I really love um, Everybody's Got Something to Hide except me and my monkey. Mm. And I would say that's lesser known. I would say to the casual fan, they probably wouldn't know a song like that. But that's a great song. It's got great energy and, yeah, I love it. But there's so many, honestly. <laughs> Just going back to your Revolution 9 episode, I don't think you could do an impersonal study that would be interesting of that song. If you just did the flat facts, mm. it would be terribly dry. So... Mm. I think your instinct was correct there just to over-personalise it, if anything, because it, it, it is such a subjective song. And it made me, yeah. go, it, it made me go, go back and listen to it in the, in the dark, which was a really fun experience. Oh, yeah. I'm yet to do the uh, George Martin thing where I, I sit up against two speakers, though, and see the show in front of me. Yeah, well, I was actually working on that show just before Christmas because um, I had a lot to think about and I wasn't sure exactly how I was going to do it. I did it over maybe five or six nights, which is not how I normally would work. And one night I was up till about two o'clock and just listening to all those John Lennon vocalisms. I don't know if you remember, but there's a bit in the show where I, I isolated them all. There's a bit where he's going, wah, wah, like that. He's making these amazing, <laughs> yeah, yeah. he's doing these amazing noises. And I just find, I find it spooky anyway. And I'd love to hear the 5.1. I mean, I was, Lucky to have some clips from Alan Cozin, who's a sort of Beatles commentator I really like. Mm -hmm. And he, he loves 5.1, and he said that 5.1 is just crazy. It's scary. It's spooky. That's oh, what I love about that. Why wasn't Revolution Take 20 on the White Album re-release? Come on. Just give it to us officially. Every, everyone's yeah. heard it by now. Come on. Yeah, that's great, though, isn't it? Amazing. Cats out the bag, Paul. Come on. Right, back to my supposed quickfire questions. Um <laughs> Opposite side of the coin, what's the most overrated Beatles tune? Overrated Beatles tune. Just off, totally off the top of my head. I think Get Back is... Mm. Uh, oh, sorry if you like that one. But uh, mm. it's, a good, it's a good song, but um, it's one of the most famous ones, perhaps because of the rooftop. But I find it a bit repetitive. Also, um, maybe something like Can't Buy Me Love, perhaps. But I, I love them. You know, there's very... It's a bit of a cliche, but there's very few Beatles songs I actually don't like. It's just a few early ones. I like mm -hmm. nearly all of them, but I don't know. Maybe those two leap out. Don't know. No, like you never hear someone say, "Oh, I hate flying." You know, people just don't. Oh yeah. Don't seem to have the same hate for that uh, latter stuff. Right. What is your favourite post-Beatle album of any of the four? Uh, I mean, that one's easy. Plastic Ono Band. I am a bit John-centric, obviously, <laughs> but we just did a we just did a show about 1970. Yes, I do. I do like a series, John Lennon in, and then the year, and we talk about obviously John Lennon's involvement in the year, but we talk about uh, the films of the year, births, deaths, news events, and everything. And I went back because uh, I don't. I was saying to someone on the show, I don't sit down and listen to John Lennon and Beatles stuff because I'm researching John Lennon anyway for the show, so I don't need, I don't need to. But I sat down, I listened to Plastic Ono from uh, start to finish, and. Um, I'm quite an emotional person as well, particularly in certain cases like this. And I kind of had tears in my eyes. I just thought, 
this is just such an incredible statement. And it needed like a few years away from listening to it from start to finish. But mm. I'd have to say that one by, by a long way, actually. That 1970 yeah. episode you released, like that Kent State part that you put in there, that was so, mm. that, that was shocking, that was. Like it kind of hit me out of nowhere. I was like, that was real. It was it's, uh, kind of uh, surreal, but less so in kind of recent years, I guess. Yeah. I'm so lucky nowadays to have, um, I mean, essentially they're just YouTube clips. I always manage to find some clips and I've got quite a big archive. When I used to buy CDs, I would, and then when I got a computer for the first time, I ripped rip them into MP3s, whatever. So I've got a huge audio archive. So it's not too difficult for me to find clips. Mm -hmm. That one, because we were doing the year rather than just John Lennon, I think it was good to have a news report in there. So yeah, it was good. The people that uploaded bootlegs up onto youtube they deserve obes you know they are the real <laughs> heroes yeah don't you don't you sometimes think though where do these where do these things come from like because some some beatles stuff or or any stuff we're, we're told like it's it's was destroyed like years ago <laughs> and then yeah. they mysteriously appear there's like there's almost nothing you can't find on that channel anymore it's like where are they you know, like I, I always think, if if I went back in time, would I just go to George Martin and say, "Just record everything, okay? Mm. Re- record, record everything. Don't ask why. Just do it." Yeah. But then, everything ends up coming out, and like, is that because it's leaked? Do they in, intend it to? Do they fuel the the bootleg black market? That it, I mean, it is kind of defunct now. Yeah. Especially with like the, the proliferation of the internet and stuff like that. Mm. Or is it a case that there, there was a vast network of spies and moles and yeah. pe- people getting sacked from Apple for running off with acetates. Yeah. Uh, I mean, very, very famously, the, the, I mean, the John Lennon diaries were <clears throat> stolen, yeah. possibly by someone that I may have had on my show. Mm. Uh, and, you know. Did you get Fred Seaman on your show? No, I got Jeffrey Giuliano on, who, oh, uh, who right. was the recipient of them, supposedly. Oh, I nearly got Fred Seaman, but it was a bit complicated. But I got Fred Seaman's friend, Robert Rosen. It was one of the recent shows, yeah. yeah. I took the liberty of listening to your other episode uh, with Jason Barnard from the Strange Brew podcast. Was that the best songs or the worst songs? Both. Oh, both, okay. And I thought I'd take the liberty of going through my own kind of top five and bottom three oh, sure, of yeah. uh, Lennon. I couldn't delineate, though, between Solo and Beatle John just because I don't know Solo John that well. Yeah, I don't know Solo Paul that well, so it's interesting we're doing this because, yeah. Sorry, go on. For my best Solo, Lennon, I went for Mother, mm-hmm. Crippled Inside. Oh, love it. Just Like Starting Over. Mm-hmm. Oh, Yoko. Yep. And Well, Well, Well. Oh, nice. Yeah, I mean... My list and Jason's list, we kind of purposely tried to stretch them over the period of his career. So it wasn't a definitive top five, but yeah, I'm liking that. Crippled Inside, I've always loved for some reason. It's pretty simple, but I love it. It's so good. It's so immediately catchy. And it's very Muzaki, quite ironically, <laughs> in the way that, you know, John would say, oh, we, we, you know, we don't do waltzes in this band. And then he writes Babies in Black, you know? Yeah, yeah.
worst solo Lennon. The only one I could think of that I don't like is whatever gets you through the night. Which, uh, Jason chose that. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 I genuinely, I think it's, I think it's a joke song. I think it's mm. Lennon thinking, what, what can I get away with? Mm. I, f- I find it quite impenetrable to listen to, if I'm honest. Mm. Yeah, not too much to say on that one. It just, it's, it's kind of a, a nothing song for me, really. On to best Beatle Lennon though. This is, this is where. It got really difficult for mm, me. Mm. Um, I mean, even as a Paul guy, you know, how do you choose between the best of John? Because you know, all of it, you know, speaks for itself, really. Mm. I went, um, so I kind of just took a stab with "If I Fell," yeah, "Girl," which I love playing on guitar as well. Yeah, um, down on that eighth capo, it's like the, um, you're going to lose that girl. Mm. Being for the benefit of Mister Kite, right. which low key is probably my second favorite song from Pepper. Ooh, that that was bubbling under my worst list, actually. That's interesting. Really? Oh, yeah. my gosh. And there are so many good covers of it as well. Frank Sidebottom probably does my favourite. Oh, I've never heard any. Yeah, it's interesting. Well, I've heard Paul doing it, of course. <laughs> yes. Um, mm. It's My theory with that, though, is purely because Paul's bass line in it is incredible, oh, yeah, and, yeah. And, that, and that's more for him than for John. Yeah. You know, oh, I'll I'll pick a John song, one where I go on the bass, uh, yeah. and my last one is another example of that actually, which is Hey Bulldog. Oh yeah, yeah. I think I think that's kind of like Baby's first favorite obscure Beatles song. Yeah, I think it's one of the ones that people hold in uh, quite high regard, like latterly. It's funny how songs age, and actually, I think. I think two of the ones which are really well thought of now that didn't used to be were, were George songs, actually, Within You, Without You, mm-hmm. and maybe Blue Jay Way as well. Because, again, if you listen to the isolated tracks of Blue Jay Way, it really brings something out. So it's wonderful how, like, over a period of years, your list can change. You know, anyone's oh, yeah. list can oh, change because you suddenly, you suddenly think, well, I we, we did our list, and I think I had Girl... I mean, we, we made sure we didn't have the same songs. So between us, we had, you know, Strawberry Fields, Day in the Life, Walrus. But then we suddenly, at the end of it, we thought, oh, God, hang on. What about Happiness is a Warm Gun? And what about <laughs> Julia? And what about, yeah. So, impossible. But um, It really is. Mm. My worst ones. Um, I'm not proud of all of these. <laughs> good Morning, Good Morning, which I've never been able to stand. Uh, probably the Nadir of Pepper if I'm completely honest. Mr. Moonlight, which, again, a bit of a meme. I think everyone said what they've had to say about that one. Yeah. Words of Love, always found quite banal and irritating. Uh, Little Child as well. Oh, yeah. And I'll Get You, which is just one of those throwaway B-sides, you know? Yeah, I think Words of Love. I think uh, Beatles for Sale. I really... uh, One thing I wanted to ask you, if we could... uh... We could think of some really cliched John and Paul remarks and then maybe not, try not to make them or something like that. <laughs> One of the ones is um, about Beatles for sale. I think I think they were quite tired at the end of 64. And words of love, you know, you did think them doing a Buddy Holly cover would be the best thing ever, but there's something quite tired about it. I don't know. You know, they're, they're just singing it with, 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 with their eyes closed. I mean, like I say, I'm I'm not that familiar with the wider Lennon discography at all. Mm, mm. With that in mind, what have I got look, to like look forward to with some time in New York, Mind Games, and Walls and Bridges? Well, you know what we were saying earlier about sort of being I don't know counterculture or trying to be alternative. Mm-hmm. I do find certain opinions do prevail 
and you'll just, as you said earlier, you'll just hear them repeated over and over. And everyone you talk to will say exactly the same thing about Sometime in New York City. It's not bad musically, but the lyrics are like some sort of sixth form politics. You know, <laughs> you know, this has got really lame politics. And um, some of that is true, you know. I mean, prevailing opinions generally have some sort of truth, like stereotypes, it's kind of like that. But <laughs> it's, it's such a personal thing, because I was in New York uh, in 2002, the only time I'd ever been there. And I'd never heard this album, or I'd heard bits of it. And uh, I bought the CD, and then we were sort of around someone's house, and he said, oh, what have you got there? And I said, I just bought this album, oh, should I stick it on? And he stuck it on full volume, and, and I love Ele Elephant's Memory, which is the band that's playing on that. They're a bit ragged, but mm -hmm. it's, it's very nice and loose. And I actually thought the album was pretty good, and I'm happy to debate that with like other people. We've just done a show about 1972 that hasn't gone out yet. It's very, it's quite... I don't know, an American sound, that's probably a bit of a generic comment, but it, it sounds loose and it sounds ragged and they didn't really fix. A lot of people have an issue with the fact they didn't fix bits where the vocals don't match up very well. So it's a sort of jammy, a jam mm. kind of feeling about it. The lyrics are a bit, you know, they took up all these causes. I'm sure you know something about that. Like, in, perhaps you didn't research the causes enough and it's got lyrics, like you did one called Attica State, which is where there'd been a riot. Um, at a prison in New York, which ironically is the prison where his killer ended up and is to this day. And, you know, he had lyrics like um, free all prisoners, jail the judges and all that kind of thing. And, <laughs> and but, I mean, the sentiment of that is not bad. It's, he's saying he's saying that a lot of the time prisoners can be victims, but it was just a bit too uh, on the nose, as they say in America, you know, free all prisoners, jail all judges. It was a little bit, it did sound a bit... Kind of like schoolyard, bit, yeah, yeah, a bit or a bit sort of teenage radical kind of thing. Well, like, isn't that just because Lennon was like one of the first people to kind of express his, his opinions in that way? Because, like, you, you, you know, you know, when like, people look back at say, like, you know, Jaws and they're, and they're like, oh gosh, this is so dated, and it's like, no, 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 this is where the stereotypes and the tropes come from, this is what everything else refers back to or something like star wars or yeah god you know godfather something like that lennon was the the kind of first guy to say you know ah, blowing establishment and old people and shaking his fist at them he was you know one of the first guys to really do that publicly and that's why it might not have aged well at all um, uh, like his music per se i think what it was is that if you take people like um phil oaks and pete seeger it was a kind of folky acoustic guitar, quite a, almost a genteel thing. You can't hear a lot of anger in Pete Seeger. But John was doing it with rock and roll, and it was something different. And I think it's had a little bit of a, of a bad press. I think Yoko generally still gets a bad press from everyone for her music. And it's a lot of the time it's for certain... They took over a show in America for a week, and John Lennon got to jam with Chuck Berry... And they're doing uh, Johnny Be Good and Memphis, Tennessee, yeah, right in yeah. the middle. And Yoko's in, you know, yes. but in the middle of something in totally the wrong context. But I think people perhaps still hold her to things like to things like that. You know, um, the other albums, Mind Games, Mind Games is definitely the most conventional. It's sort of very mid tempo. There's hardly any sort of experimentation at all. It's about half of a really good album. This five or six really good tracks and walls and bridges is much more personal i mean your our mutual friend owen ling really likes that and he just wrote a thing about it that's it's quite confessional it's 
Let's see, I think there's one song about Yoko and one song about May Pang, who was obviously with during the last weekend on the same album. So that was quite brave. But uh, Oh, my gosh. Yeah. No, um, I was just saying that on my Tom Waits podcast. He has one song about his wife, Kathleen, and he has one song about Ricky Lee Jones on the same album. And I actually right. said on that episode, has anyone else done that? And you've just answered that for me right now. So thank you for that. Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty it. sure the song Bless You is on Walls and Bridges. Yeah, I think it is. So, yeah, yeah. <laughs> my gosh. So he did Double Fantasy mm. for his death, and then there's another album called Milk and Honey, and yeah. I've heard you can combine them two to get a, an entirely John Lennon album. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of what I did. And when, when I had um, Kit O'Toole on the show, we, we kind of worked from that. And uh, it's much... Milk and Honey, although it's got songs like Grow Old With Me, which is quite uh, sentimental, but it's well thought of, that song. Mm-hmm. It's got some edgy stuff. And it's got um, Nobody Told Me, which I think is the best of the whole sessions. There's Natchez in the bathroom just below the stairs. Always something happening and nothing going on. There's always something cooking and nothing in the pot. They're starving back in China, so finish what you got. It's got stuff like, I don't want to face it. And it's got this famous line, you say you want to save humanity, but it's people that you just can't stand. And wow, uh, that, that's, that's such a Lennon line. It, it is, yeah. And I think that would really, if that had come out in 1980, there might have been a few people who might have said, uh, oh, that doesn't quite fit with the rest of all this sort of family contentment stuff. Although I'm losing you is quite edgy. But I think if you had a John Lennon 1980 album, which I would have liked to have seen, and Yoko could have put out her album, uh, at the same time, in conjunction, rather than this heart play thing, I think uh, that's a pretty decent album. He still had it, for sure. <laughs> how many people, how many suits must have been on their knees? John, please, just do it as a solo record. I'm begging uh, you. I'm begging you. Uh, it's a shame. I don't know why they didn't... Yeah, I would have liked to see them do that as a fan, because then Yoko still would have got her album. You know, but again, that's yeah, and, uh, and she can she can keep all of her money. You know, yeah. you know the, the the eight people that buy her album, she can keep that money, and then the hundreds of thousands of other people who want to buy John's music, they can buy the other the other the other album. 
tell you what, though, Walking on Thin Ice is a great song. Oh, yeah, it's a good dancey dance number. It's so, in- so interesting that they both, um, John and Paul, both married uh, American women who actually went to the same Same university. College, That's the conspiracy, Anthony. That's <laughs> yeah. the conspiracy. We're going to pretend to not like each other and we're both going to bag Beatles. Or, you know. But they, um, they both kind of did the same thing. I mean, they got married a week apart. They often, their lives paralleled each other in a funny way. That doesn't really get... Eric, Eric and George were definitely sharing wives and girlfriends. Yeah. Would, it, would I get sued if I implied that John and Yoko and Paul and Linda could have swapped? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, don't, I just don't think it would have happened. <laughs> yeah, oh, my God. That would... Pro- I think if we found that out and mm. there was, like, a national tragedy on the same day, you wouldn't even find out about the tragedy. But it, it, would, it would just be... John and Paul wife wife swappers or jo- John and Paul swingers, yeah. the son would love that. Oh my god! Yeah, I think it's just reached a point now where, like I say, hate to say the same thing again, but like I have to just concede that I don't know anything. You know, <laughs> I, yeah, I can I can See, speculate I actually, up to a good point though. <laughs> I, but I honestly find the, the the more liberal times we live in now to be working at the advantage of finding. out the real truth of the Beatles story, because now we're in a point whereby no one actually... It doesn't matter if John was gay or not. It it fucking doesn't matter. It's not important at all. Hmm. And now that we are in a more accepting time, I think we, we, we will start to see the the entire, you know, the story from from both sides. Like, it sounds in, incredibly morbid, but we're not going to get the good movie about the Beatles until, sadly, Ringo and Paul are no longer here with us, possibly even mm. Olivia and Yoko. Um, wow. But um, then, you, then you'll have Danny and uh, Sean. You wouldn't be able to wait till they've all died. That's the problem, because there'll be more generations. But some trying to get some kind of feeling and trying to get some sort of aspect, as he did with Bob Dylan. I think John Lennon would be very much a good candidate for that. That, that I'd like to see. I think the Beatles as a whole, I think it's been done reasonably well. But I think to explore these sides of John Lennon's personality, as I've done in my podcast, but it's taken me already 40-whatever episodes, probably 50 by the time this comes out, actually. And then um, I, th- I think there's scope for that because I think he's interesting enough. I'm sure Paul is as well. I just don't know as much about him as, as you do and uh, perhaps Tom well, and other people, but... Dude, when when you sprung on me, who is Paul McCartney? I kind of had to ask myself quite honestly, who the fuck is he? Like, I know, I know what a Paul McCartney is. I know what he does and what he's made and what he size. Who he is though, that is, that is completely up in the air. Like, you always hear like he says things like, you know, if you sign these NDAs, you can come to dinner with me and I'll I'll tell you the lot. And I'm like, oh my god, I'd yeah. sign that. I'd, I'd sign my soul away. I'd literally say, Paul MPL has. My eternally damned soul, you know, you can do whatever you, everyone with it. Just tell me what happened in that Japanese prison. Please. I think, I think what we like, I think what we all like, I think we can all say this is we like it when just like little grains of truth that we haven't heard before come out. Oh yeah, no, it, you know, it's, it's, it's lovely. It's, it's when the Star happens. Wars syndrome. Nothing is worse than knowing where Darth Vader came from. <laughs> you know, or like the Alien prequels. Don't don't tell me how the Alien was made. Just, just show me the Beatles. You know, yeah. I want, I want to know all of this stuff, but you know, forbidden fruit, the apple. Once you've gained the knowledge, you can't go back, and it might not be what what you wanted. Yeah, I like that apple and forbidden fruit. Very good. 
Oh, I've been obsessed good, with though. Hieronymus Bosch lately. I've been looking at oh. uh, the Garden of Earthly Delights with a magnifying glass for a couple of days, just been enraptured by it. <laughs> wow. So, um, yeah, I guess the debate goes on. I think with with John Lennon, it's because um, I'm dealing with a, a limited amount. I do feel like the, the the topics of the podcast will eventually run out, but it's still going. You're never going to be stuck. Uh, never going to be stuck for uh, material. Yeah. Fucking hell! Would 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 Lennon have done a children's book? <laughs> well, he probably quite possibly. Yeah, some illustrations or something. Something Alice in Wonderland esque. Yeah. No, nah, it'd be about peace, I reckon. Yeah, as well. Yeah. 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 yeah or like, um, <laughs> you know, it's a it's it's a bedding time story. Hey, they. <laughs> yeah. Stay in bed. Read this book. You know, that kind of thing. I'm only sleeping, yeah. Uh, I'm so tired. These books write themselves. I guess I'm not as full of trepidation as one might think with those albums because like, the wider Beatle, again, podcasting community really seems to rate that mid-70s Lennon period. Um, every single podcast I've listened to has really? really rated my... Yeah, yeah, yeah. They, um, I guess almost like it's some sort of lost era of the uh, Beatles story, you know? Because everyone likes Plastic Go in a Band mm. and Imagine and... Mm. Everyone's got that latest hits album where he looks really skinny on the on the front cover, you know. Oh yeah, yeah. That was one of the first. That was actually a photo. Is that the um, the John Lennon collection? Is that one? Yeah, with the white background. Yeah. Yeah, because one of them's got a photo of him actually on the day he died. Because he actually had a photo shoot that day, which is very eerie. Um, the the rock and roll album is the other one that kind of gets pilloried. Briefly, you know, in 73, he started recording this with Phil Spector, but it all went wrong because there was loads of alcohol and drugs going around. You don't say. Yeah, you don't say, <laughs> surprisingly enough. And then he ended up sort of finishing it without Spector. And it's a little bit slick, but again, there's some really amazing versions of those old songs on there. Yeah, so, you know, it's, it's patchy. I think everyone loves Stand By Me, though, don't they? Yeah. Even if they don't know that it comes from the rock and roll album. Mm. Yeah. But, you know, John, John Lennon's career, basically, two of his albums were sort of half albums because half were Yoko, that's Sometime in New York City and Double Fantasy, which is the one that came out just before he died. Um, so there's not actually that much. I mean, there's a ton of outtakes. I've got every outtake you can imagine, and some of that's great and some of it isn't. So it's a bit patchy, and, of course, the big question, you know, it's almost like the question I sign off with in most of my episodes when I've got a guest on is, what would he have done after 1980? And um, I think it still would have been patchy. And my personal opinion, again, this is a controversial opinion. I don't think he actually would have survived more than about 20 years. I think cancer would have probably got him because he, mm. he didn't, you know, I mean, again. Uh, he would have had another top 10 single. He may have even had, you know, you know, George, something, something like I've got my mind set on you. Yeah, he could have done yeah. a cover, a cover of Johnny Be Good in in '86 that was used in Back to the Future, and it was really, you know, successful. Something like that. Mm. You know, you know, you never, you never know. What ifs and those hypotheticals with the Beatles uh, is one of my favourite things to do. Really, it really annoys annoys my friends. You know, I'm always like, ah, oh, what would the White Album be if it was just one disc? It doesn't matter, Sam. It does. Yeah, it matters vitally. <laughs> Yes. What would Red Rose Speedway be like if it had the double disc release? Would Wings be cool? That would have changed the world. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the other thing about John Lennon, I think, I think people obviously want to remember him well, which is fine. 
But um, I don't know if you ever listened to something about the Beatles. With... Do I listen to something about yeah. the Beatles? I, I've actually booked an episode with Robert, with Robert Rodriguez. Oh, have you? Oh, very good. Yeah. 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 I, mean, I, <coughs> I mean, I'll be honest. I don't know if they're going to be listening to this or not. But uh, I did. I know they had a, quite an acrimonious fallout, falling out. But those early shows, when it was Richard and Robert together, they were a huge influence, as was Fabcast as well, to, for this idea of being more irreverent and not kind of being nice all the time, you know. I've got to thank you for introducing me to Fabcast, because <laughs> they've got an insane Mark Lewison interview that essentially goes through everything that I've needed to know about the uh, kind of period between Press to Play and yeah. Flowers, in the, Flowers in the Dirt, which is the most fun i've had in researching mccartney really yeah i mean they're they're um i mean they won't be everyone to everyone's taste because they they engage in a lot of hyperbole but when i heard that and obviously uh, you know they probably brought out 20 episodes so i binged those for a few days it's so refreshing to just hear people just giving their opinions without any filter and cutting through you know opinions that have been prevailed for 40 years i mean I don't know if they like sometime in New York City, but if they did, you know, they'd say it, you know, from the rafters, so to speak. It's very refreshing. It's what we need. We're in a golden age of Beatles podcasting. Um, yeah. um, another one that I've listened to, um, Another Kind of Mind. Mm. That's that's absolutely so in-depth. Mm. And, uh, you know, so so many of the stories come from all these different perspectives. And that's that's all you really can do, you know. Mm. Pretty much all the all the facts have been stated. I just I just want to hear fun fun opinions and banter. That's all you can hope for, really. Yeah. In our back and forth, mm. you mentioned something that I was I was looking forward to discussing, which is the stereotypes, tropes, and cliches mm. of L- Lennon McCartney. And I guess before we can discuss their validity, we should probably list what they are. I've got I've got two little handy columns here. Yeah. So do you want to go through what might be your tropes for John Lennon that the public might perceive? Well, the John and Paul tropes, yeah. I'll, put, I'll yeah. do them in my um, Beatles yeah, Academics well. voice. John was more of a word person. Paul was a music <laughs> person. Uh, the other yeah. one was uh, John, John was an artist. He was instinctive. Paul was more commercial. He was a glib songwriter. You know, he wasn't an artist at all. He, was a, he, was, he had his eye on... Oh, yeah, the other one was... a. Paul was a great PR man. John was always natural. Hmm. John Lennon, yeah. just before, sorry, just to say, um, it's, it's, it's now emerged. Again, because the whole 1980 period with John Lennon, because of what happened, everybody tends to tread carefully about kind of slagging him off or anything. But they told all these bullshit stories that he hadn't done anything for five years and that the songs on Double Fantasy came to him like in a vision almost, you know, for pure inspiration where these bootlegs came out, which actually showed that it was a total opposite, that he was crafting them. So one thing that does make me a bit angry <laughs> is uh, when I hear John Lennon saying, Paul's a great PR guy and I'm, I'm so natural because he could bullshit with the best of them to reporters. So, yeah, there's three for a start. <laughs> yeah. Ironically, Lennon is about as a reliable narrator as Holden Caulfield. So. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah for me i've got uh john was the leader whereas paul is the usurper <laughs> or the lieutenant maybe yeah. or the lieutenant yeah. yeah or sorry well lieutenant as we should say lieutenant, way to say yeah yeah <laughs> other lennon tropes would be that he's a a man of peace and love but also that he's very tough as well seemingly at the same time mm. john was supposedly the leader of the band mm. questionable 
he is the Beatles is one that I wrote as well. A lot, a lot of people seem to say that without John, there is that there is none of that. Mm. And I was listening to an episode of I Am the Egg Pod, and oh, yeah. they were talking about uh, genius clusters, the concept of genius clusters, and it is one of those. You know, when Paul's like, "I liken us to four sides of a square," mm. <laughs> I generally, I tend to go that way. Yeah. Another one is that John was the political one, and the others weren't that political, uh, John, and that John never sold out. Mm. I'd like, I'd like to know your opinion on that one. If, if there are any cases of Lennon selling out to the man or for money. Um, well, I think, as far as we know, I think this came from John Lennon himself. Um, there was some sort of uh, bargain, let's say, when Brian Epstein took them over. Um, he didn't just smarten them up and they, they said, oh, fucking hell, we don't want to do this. They were they were interested in success. A bit like Bob Dylan, actually, you know. Mm-hmm. You think of him as an artist, but he also wanted, you know, he wanted money and he wanted to be famous originally. And I think John Lennon said, you know, Brian, if you can make me famous, I don't mind. He'd call it a compromise rather than selling out, you know. <laughs> so I think, you know, if you're a public figure, inevitably you're going to have to do you know, bullshit photo shoots and having to smile when you don't feel like it. I mean, there's a, I don't know if you're a Radiohead fan, but there's a great uh, documentary. It's so great, I can't remember the name of it. <laughs> uh, and it's them. Oh, shit. Do you mind if I Google this while we're talking? Man looks up something <laughs> on computer. <laughs> Shock horror. And it's it's one where, oh, it's, I think it's called Meeting People is Easy. I've just remembered it, actually. And it you just see them going... Uh, Oh hi, this is Johnny from Radiohead. You're you're watching uh, MTV or something, and you could just tell how uncomfortable they are. And you think you've got to do that all the time. And I think if you have a really fertile mind like John Lennon inev- undoubtedly did, then it's going to be harder and harder. So did he compromise? Yes, but I think a lot of it was inevitable. What was the other thing? Just as a as a comparison, if Lennon came back in, say, 81 and did a tour where it was half Beatles songs, mm. I don't think he'd get the same flack for Paul's, like, 1989 tour, which is, like, 60% Beatles songs, you know? Mm. Whereas, like, people are like, oh, you know, Paul's going back to his Beatles songs. Oh, I guess, I guess he's not good enough. Mm. I don't think people would have the same reaction with Lennon, they'd probably be like, yay, Lennon's doing all the Beatles songs again, and he would just have a natural positive spin. It's just so uh, difficult to know, though, because he died, you see, and he died violently, and it's it's almost impossible to divorce ourselves from, you know, a world where that didn't happen to John Lennon, you know. Yeah. Unfortunately, it's something we're never going to know. I mean, it's definitely fun to speculate, but I, I think, you know, he would have... I don't know. I think he would have been involved with the anthology because that would have been, I mean, sort of 15 years That's the years one, later. isn't it? That's the big one. Yeah. Just some fresh interviews. Yeah, I think he... What I've learned, I mean, I, I, you know, I've, I've got a lot of affection for, you know, John Lennon and I've got more and more... Um, the contradictions is, is just... is hilarious in a way. And as you said, unreliable narrator. And he... Uh, I think he would have just veered between one thing and another. I think he just did that constantly. So there would have been days where he thought, oh, yeah, I love the Beatles. That was really good. Mm. Why don't I call somebody and, you know, meet them or whatever? And then there'll be other days when they go, oh, it's fucking bullshit, you know. <laughs> so I don't know. Yeah. The go-to one is what would John Lennon be like on Twitter and stuff like that, I think. Yeah. 
His Instagram account would be unbelievable. Uh, yeah, well, you probably heard us speculating if you've been listening to the show recently. It's, yes, we we all came to the same uh, opinion that he he would fire off angry tweets and then spend a lot of time apologising for them or trying to delete them and stuff. <laughs> be quite amusing. So, what's your take on the rivalry in you know supposedly in the fandom between like those who prefer Paul and those who prefer Lennon? Do you reckon it comes down just to personality types, or is it something a bit more logical? Ooh, well, I think there's a tribal aspect to to anything really with humans. You know, we like to be in a tribe, and we would. I, I think <laughs> I have a very controversial opinion. I, I don't know if you've heard of Chomsky, Noam Chomsky, much, but. He thinks that um, uh, a lot of people's opinions come down to propaganda. <laughs> and, and I feel like a lot of this tribal stuff, it's, it's almost for the sake of it. You get in a tribe and then you immediately you feel like you, you have to dislike or you have to distance yourself from the other tribe. I think um, I don't think there's a huge difference between, say, 1980 John and 1980 Paul, because I think they both got to, say, 40 Mm-hmm. I think I think Paul gets a bad a bad rap. Just a lot of the time, just for for having stayed alive, you know. And when he does things which are radical, the John Lennon people, whoever they are, you know, <laughs> I'm saying the John Lennon people, they would tend to see it in a different way, like he's trying too hard or something. Because if Paul does something that's very way out and artistic, half the people are going to say, "Oh, look, he's an artist," and the. Jo- let's say the John Lennon, maybe more biased people are going to say, oh, he's just doing that to look like an artist. But that doesn't really get you anywhere because you don't, we don't know, do we? We don't know. If, if Paul's managed to get this image, which I think is a little bit unfair, that everything he does is very calculated. And so certain people who perhaps glorify John Lennon a bit and think, oh, John was so natural and Paul so artificial, they're going to see it in that light. So... I think it just comes down to the one you prefer. And then I think there's a human tendency to sort of build straw men against the other person. So, I mean, it's quite ironic that people would say that John wasn't the, like, um, John wasn't the PR man and Paul was. Because, I mean, mm. I mean, Paul's biggest PR disaster was Lennon's death. You know, oh, you know, it's a, it's a drag, you know. That's it. Like, That's it. So why, don't, so why don't the John Lennon people, let's say, again, I don't know who they are, but... The, the John Lennon people, yeah. watch out, folks. Yeah, yeah. Well, the people that kind of maybe attach themselves a lot more to him than to Paul. Explanation for that. And then they'll just say, oh, he's arrogant because he, you know, with the Japan thing in 1980, he had weed. You know, if John Lennon, perhaps if John Lennon had done that, they would have said, God, what a rock star. He's just, he's got his rebel, weed yeah. right in the top of his carry-on bag. He doesn't give a fuck. Whereas with Paul, it's, oh, Paul's so arrogant, he doesn't care if he gets caught, you know. So I have sympathy. Oh, I've got to press the tangent button. I've got to press the digression button. I'm going to whack it now. There you go. Did Yoko Ono set up Paul? I very much doubt it. I mean, I don't don't think anything's beyond the realms of possibility, but I actually think that the... um, Had a guy on... Again, it hasn't gone out yet because I've been stockpiling episodes, but had a guy actually knew, Albert Goldman, who brought out this uh, book about John Lennon. Again, and a bit of a bugbear with me. People will say, oh, I don't want to hear that man's name or something like that, instead of actually reading the book and seeing if any of it's come true. But that was one of the stories that was in his book, which is like the worst possible in terms of the impression of John Lennon, the worst possible biography. It's, it's called The Lives of John Lennon. 
Uh, I don't, I don't think so, but I wouldn't rule it out. I almost rule nothing out, but uh, <laughs> I don't think there's any good evidence for that. So yeah. Mm. Back to the tropes. Yeah, back to the tropes. Um, what other ones have we got? Um, so yeah, John was an artist. Paul was a commercial. What was the other one I said? Yeah, John was a writer. John was more of a word man. Paul was a music man. I'd probably agree with that up to a point. Yeah, and I think that also comes down to like the fandom again. Mm. Like, if you prefer melody or lyricism, mm. you probably not every time, but the Venn diagram's going to skew one way or the mm. other. You know what I mean? I think. There is that classic quote as well, you know, Paul is a good lyricist when he wants mm. to be, you mm. know. And I don't think Paul wants to be a lot of the time. I think I sometimes he, he might he might just have a certain, you know, that'll do kind of quality to a lot to a lot of his albums and sometimes I guess people wish he put a little bit more effort in, mm. but you know, there's only there's only so many ways you can skin a cat and I guess he just doesn't want to repeat himself a lot a lot of the times, so he'll just write something that's uniquely generic to that particular song and then kind of move on and not think about it. Uh, yeah. He's... You know, you, you, you don't hear about these protracted writing sessions except for maybe something like Tug of War, you know? Yeah. Well, I think, um, again, this is a pretty popular opinion, but I do tend to agree with this. On the occasions where you could really hear that it's real, like maybe I'm amazed uh, here today, obviously, mm-hmm. I can definitely hear a difference. And... I think John Lennon, again, I think if you listen to his recordings, they there's something in his voice that resonates. And I don't think he had a better voice than, than Paul at all. In fact, I think Lennon McCartney, I think I said in, your, in, your, in my email to you, what I love about it is that for me, they're perfectly equal. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. one's better in one regard, but there's, some, there's a, a perfect equality about the two of them as songwriters, in my opinion. But I think, I don't think Paul, for me, it's my personal opinion, I don't think his vocals grab me emotionally. I mean, they're great moments, you know, when he does the rock and roll. I like, I mm-hmm. like something like, uh, you know, this one from Flowers in the Dirt. That, Classic. Yeah, yeah, that feels very real, you know. If I never, And the lyrics are good, you know. If I never did it, I was only waiting for a perfect moment that wouldn't come. You know, I really love that song, actually. That's a big favourite. But um, what, do you think of, what do you think of Paul's lyrics? Would you... Well, um, it's interesting you should pick that uh, this one because that is a song that is one of his more protracted ones. Like there are that there are uh, demos with Phil Ramone that go back to like eighty five oh, and right. that didn't come out till eight till eighty nine, and in added new bridges and middle eights and stuff like that. For, for me, um, I am more of a melody man, if I'm honest. Like I'm I'm really drawn to a lot of his fireman stuff yeah. and McCartney too, where lyrics matter less, but. There's a certain universal charming simplicity to a lot of his lyrics. Mm. Um, they, they don't have to mean anything. Yeah. And going back to that point with Lennon about how some of it feels quite schoolyard or university politics degree. Maybe, yeah. Mm. You don't get any of that with Paul. A lot, a lot of the negatives with Paul are some of my favourites, though. Like, I love granny music. I love things like I walk <laughs> through, I walk through the park with Eloise, or oh, yeah. you gave me the answer. That's my, that's my jam. So, um, that's why I like crippled inside so much. You know? Yeah, I like. Um, what's the other one? Oh, Baby's Request is a big favourite. Oh, God. Yeah. oh Lawrence yeah. Juber on guitar as well. Shout out to Lawrence. Uh, oh right, right. Yeah. I, I, 
I was going to say, I love all of his bad albums. Like so far, I've, mm-hmm. I've, I've gone through Press to Play and Pipes of Peace. I love both of them. They're great. There's some great ones on Press to Play. That was, um, you know, we said earlier about um, a lot of it is contextual. That was one of the first. I had all the best, which was the compilation, wasn't it? And then Press to Play was, I think, the first one of his regular albums I actually had. And in those days, of course, just going back a bit, sort of the 80s, 90s, um, little cassettes. But the great thing was that in those days with your Walkman, you played the thing to death. You know, it wasn't skipping songs all the time. You just played the whole thing because it was too much effort probably to to fast forward through songs. Hmm. You know, you could just click a button, but it was great because that was the only one of his albums I had. So I just played it to death. And this, I can't remember all the tracks from that, but... Is there one called Footprints or Footsteps? Or? Footprints. That's one of the ones Footprint. with her hero with Eric Stewart. Fantastic. And I like um, Good Times Coming. And when it goes Good to the Times Coming in. Yeah. Ah, big favourite. I love it. That's another one of my favourite types of, you know, kind of McCartney tropes. You've got the multi-part song, like you just mentioned there. Footprints is the oh, McCartney wow. acoustic. I love all of those as well. Yeah. I mean, I do like his solo career, but I, I would tend to cherry pick songs that really stick out like calico skies is lovely again it it really feels like when he says um it was written that i would love you from the moment i opened my eyes and it's just how beautiful an image is that 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 linda was the one you know because i'm glad i'm glad that he's happy now with his nancy but with his nancy (laughs) do you hear that sounded nancy yeah yeah uh, I'm very glad that he's happy with nancy but i think linda was the one i mean that was a big triumph of Paul mccartney's life because if you if you think that the way the tabloids are, if there was any hint that either of them had had an affair, that you know, the tabloids would be all over it. But I've never heard of anything, and I think you know of them being unfaithful to each other. So I think I think that was a big triumph. So I can say when when he really means it, you know, I love it. And then you have got the melody as well. So you know, there's loads well, of his I, songs that would be among my favourites. Hmm. I've always felt quite guilty because my my theory generally is that if Paul McCartney's having a bad time, he's going to crank out a really good album. Like if you want to mm. look at McCartney One or Ram or Band mm. on the Run, times when he was really you know he he had his back up against the wall, he brings out the goods. Whereas you know yeah. once he's showered with praise, you get things like Venus and Mars and Flaming Pie and that kind of ilk. So mm. yeah, there are there are ups and downs. Um, you know, as a human, well, I, was, I want him to be happy, but as a as a podcaster looking for stuff to overanalyze, you know, I definitely want him to be unhappy. Yeah, I think he said something about, um, you know, if you have to be unhappy to create great art, then I don't want to create great art or something like that. He said, <laughs> he's actually more, he's actually a lot more honest than people give him credit for. That's another another trope from the you know the John Lennon uh, tribe, let's say, that they'll say like, oh, he's not very candid, and you know, he is a bit. He does tend to say all these old stories and stuff, but a lot of the time it's the interviewer's fault. Yeah, like, even with just anecdotes that I that, that I have on the podcast here, they just do become second nature to you. And how many times has McCartney had to say, oh, well, you know, let it be came to me in a dream, and my mum was like, you know, just let it be. Like, it, it, it is second nature to him, and, you know, yeah. in carpool karaoke, which, you know, again, would Lennon have done carpool karaoke? I don't know. Probably and James Corden's there's going. Oh, we're going to sing Imagine and we're going to go round yeah. Liverpool. I'll tell you what though, when he because um, I've done that tour, the Fourth Lynn Road and Mendips tour four or five mm-hmm. times. When he actually went through that door, that that was pretty amazing because it had been fifty four years 
He moved out the 24th in a road in 1964, and he was back 54 years later, and the, and the house looks pretty much the same as it was when he left. That was pretty magical. But all the other stuff, like, I've never quite understood when someone like him's walking around Liverpool and just these rational middle-aged people just start going, ah! I've never, <laughs> I've never, you know, they suddenly see, oh, my God, and, and you know, it's just like, what are you expecting him to do? Like, he's not like a magic man. Yeah, he's made some amazing music, you know, and he's very, very talented. But him even less than other people. I mean, like, I had a friend who, who met Bob Dylan in Australia on the street and said, oh, actually, he was quite boring. Like, <laughs> well, like, but what what are we expecting from these people? You know, what were you, you know, I don't understand why people have to scream when they see Paul McCartney or someone, but... The worst feeling on the planet must be you're Paul McCartney and you've had a really tiring day, probably like a, a really protracted business meeting, mm. and then you go to a party and there's a fucking piano there. <laughs> oh, no. Yeah. Cut to two hours and a few tequilas later. Hey, Jude, and everyone's yeah. there with the lighters out. You must yeah. have to do that one in every three social gatherings. It, it, it must be mm. exhausting being an ex-Beatle. It must be. <laughs> Well, you're talking just this one thing you were saying earlier about granny music. I do find as I've got older, I've got more and more appreciation for stuff like Honey Pie and, uh, mm-hmm. you know, Martha, my dear, and all that thing is very skillful as well. I mean, the guy's an amazing musician. I don't think anyone disputes that. I think just I put what... Martha, my dear, in my top solo or McCartney Beatles songs, actually. Yeah, I've always loved Martha, my dear, especially since it's the more rocky side of that vaudeville kind of tin pan alley shtick that he, that he does and he does it so well he does yeah yeah he does it but you, you see it almost it almost makes you want to go back to the 20s and listen to it but i bet it won't sound as authentic as him doing it 40 years later you know what i mean like he he, he does i mean the negative word would be pastiche but i would say more tribute he does a tribute to busby berkeley in the 20s he does it better than they did it originally which is, is the amazing thing about it, yeah. He's like a, a non-problematic Al Jolson. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, you I mean, he, he just he just has his extraordinary gift. And I, th- I think the reason I say John and Paul are equal is that I don't think... I think they both clearly have things that the other person couldn't do. Like, uh, Paul doesn't quite have... Oh, I don't know. You well, might Paul hasn't really written an anthem, I'd argue. I mean, he's written Freedom, but he probably wants to forget about that because that's, <laughs> that's such a total... It's not even so much the song. It's a total lift of uh, whatever that song was. If I had a hammer. it's uh, yeah. yeah, it's a bit dodgy. But no, I think if we... Sort of Circle Lennon did have some sort of gift in his voice for uh, transmitting certain emotions. Mm. But I don't think he's... I don't think you could ever craft songs like Martha, My Dear in a million years. I mean, first of all, he didn't have the musical chops. He had a certain type of musical chops. Like in Plastic Ono Band, he does all the guitar and piano. It's very simple, but it's very effective. But yeah. definitely technically, I mean, he, he, I don't think he's in Paul's league, really. And he, I don't think John Lennon contributed so much to the other Paul and George's songs as vice versa. I think that's one thing I'd say. Len's more of a guitar guy as well. I think mm. that helps, and he, and he has a very distinctive guitar sound. Yeah, sure. I can't really play guitar, but I but I can make it talk. You yeah. know, make it howl and Where, move. <laughs> yeah, and like I mean, I don't care 
how big of a Paul McCartney fan you are, if the Lennon part of the end triple solo isn't your favourite part of that, then I really can't talk to you. I really can't. All oh, right, yeah. It's Paul, George, John, isn't it, the order? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Paul's lead guitar is quite rocky, isn't it? You wouldn't expect it if you only knew him as a pianist or a bassist. He's got very yeah. driving... George is a bit smoother, and then John's is kind of gut bucket. It's all re- all in the tone, really, isn't it, with him? If I if I have to sit through one more run through of "Let Me Roll It" with Paul on lead guitar, though, I am going to scream. I really am. Well, that was um, that was definitely a nod to the Plastic Ono band, wasn't it? That song. Uh, I would agree with that. That's one of those opinions, but I do agree with that. Yeah, everyone said it was very Lennon-esque, and 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 that kind of lends it to the idea that the song's about him and Lennon rolling a, a joint of friendship <laughs> as well. Yeah. Well, John then did a song called, um, oh dear, was it Beef Jerky? Yeah, it's a song called Beef Jerky, and one of those albums that you were saying earlier, Mind Games or Wars and Bridges, that's then apparently a response to Let Me Roll It, so... Yeah. Oh, I, I thought beef jerky might just be like the side dish to cold turkey. It's even got the same syllables and it rhymes as well. Yeah, yeah, it could be both. Yeah, yeah. Oh, actually, it's yeah, got right. me on the run. Something that I didn't want to talk to you about, just as a because you're a British podcaster, mm. it's the change of perceptions of Paul McCartney. Like when you first became aware of him, when you got all the best and pressed to play, was there the air that he was an uncool figure amongst your friends and stuff? Well, yes. Was he even that prominent in the scene then? Or was it just purely for the, you know, middle-of-the-road adult contemporary crowd by that point? No, I, th- I think because um, he was sort of involved peripherally in Live Aid, you know. And, I mean, he made a weird appearance on, you know, the Band-Aid, you know, Do They Know It's Christmas. He, <laughs> he, made, a, he made a weird kind of appearance on the B-side, kind of, half involved but not quite and then in the 80s i think the frog chorus you know we all stand together i think there are certain things i don't know if this is more of an english thing than an american perhaps it's the same in both countries but in england we seem to want to hold people if someone does something embarrassing we seem to just want to remember it forever and they Mm -hmm. have to work very hard to sort of change the perception so i think that didn't help but I think the Beatles in general, both as a band and solo, I think they'd really, particularly in England, people had almost forgotten about them a little bit. Um, but obviously then John Lennon died in 1980. And then gradually through the 80s, there'd be a couple of bands that name-checked them. There was a band called the Lars, which is also a Liverpool band in the 80s. So I think he was going, yeah, he, he had gone quite out of fashion. But then I think the 90s is when it all picked up again, you know? anthology etc i would have loved to have been a fan during the, the period where he was unpopular like i could be even more contrarian then like sam do you want to listen to this new talking heads album no i've got tug of war yeah. what are you talking about i think and stuff like ebony and ivory i mean i don't, I don't think ebony and ivory is bad at all and it's very tuneful but it's all right. yeah, yeah, yeah yeah but i think um and also the other thing you got to remember about him is that after john lennon died there was a mccartney backlash no doubt because John immediately, almost as soon as, you know, he'd hit the ground. Sorry, can you cut that out? I'll say that in a different way. Yeah. <laughs> um, almost as soon as he died, you know, um, mm. he was St. John. And obviously Yoko's done a lot to sort of 
propagate the idea. And so there's an inevitable backlash against Paul, basically, for surviving. And Philip Norman brought out a book in 1981 called Shout. And he stated, yes. he stated that John was three-quarters of the Beatles, and that probably didn't help either. And this general perception, which even though I'm more of a John guy and I've got a podcast about him, I understand that that's bullshit, really. And it, it makes me a bit angry on Paul's behalf that, that it, it's made so simple and that he has to be vilified for staying alive, basically. I mean, I, th I think there's things he does that don't help him, like when he tried to get the, lyric, the credits changed to McCartney Lennon for a few songs. Mm. I probably... I don't think there's too much need for that, but, you know, I'm not inside his life. I don't know, you know. <laughs> what do I know? I always say that, you know, what do I know? I've read books and everything, and I've, with this podcast, I've been lucky enough to talk to people who knew John Lennon and were in bands with him and stuff, but I still don't know anything, you know. I'm still guessing. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I mean, someone of that magnitude, it, they are, you know, as, as cliche as it sounds, they are essentially unknowable. And sure. every time you read a whole new book, you might learn point point naught 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 one percent of their entire life. I guess, though, you know, it's not survivor's guilt, but it's like it almost seems to be like a, a, a kind of perverse in, inversion of that. Mm. Not that I'm sure anyone ever, has ever consciously thought, you know, oh, it should have been poor, yeah. but... I guess I, I kind of wanted to expand on that point in the, in the sense that, like, was Lennon already an icon before his death? Because obviously, like, he's doing the, you know, the the peace and the anti-war yeah. stuff. How much of him being an, a contemporary icon is retroactively added, you know, kind of post-1980? Unfortunately, I'd have to say a lot of it um, comes from what happened. Because there's a certain thing, I mean, if we take another example, you know, Muhammad Ali, the boxer... I mean, Muhammad Ali only died a few years ago, but he was essentially stricken with um, Parkinson's, which is a, obviously a horrible disease. And you notice, I don't know who it was. This is going to sound horribly cynical. But this isn't coming from me. But someone said death or disease is the greatest marketing tool of all. And you notice that Muhammad Ali, even before he died, but when he had Parkinson's, people were suddenly talking about him as if he's Martin Luther King. Mm -hmm. You know, because the public like something simple and i think the thing that people have to remember is that the peace the peace side of him was only really a couple of years then he was an activist till about 73 and then i think perhaps understandably you know because the when you try and take on the government took the us government i mean you're really making your life extremely difficult but the thing that people perhaps don't know which is important. So he brings out the album Double Fancy in 1980 after having been away for five years. He tells the press, I wasn't making any music for five years. All the songs came to me in a dream, which is absolute bullshit because he'd been working on them for years. Yeah. Um, but the album didn't actually do well. And the single, just like Starting Over, which I quite like, you know, I've got an affection for it. It didn't shoot straight to number one in Britain or America, as didn't the album. And they only went to number one after he died. And this is one of these things that's mm. never mentioned, the fact that there were a lot of people who weren't actually very impressed by his comeback. You know, doing a John Lennon podcast and, you know, I'm, I am essentially promoting him most of the time on behalf of his estate. I don't say that many negative things just because there aren't too many negative things to say. But 
if there's one to say, I'll say it. You know. Yeah. How many reviews in like Rolling Stone and that were, were, were they published in time for his death? I mean, yeah. it was out for what two weeks or something like um, that. I think the single was in October, so that was about okay mid October, so maybe a month and a half, something like that. And then I think the album dropped in November. So, but no, there were definitely reviews. I mean, I don't have them to hand, but. 100% there were negative reviews and people were kind of, again, a lot of it is because half of it's Yoko. And um, mm-hmm. so essentially after five years, you're only getting half a John Lennon album. But definitely, I mean, they weren't across the board positive. Absolutely not. So to answer your question, I think the icon thing, unfortunately, if I'm being honest, a lot of it is to do with 1980. So... How much of the Lennon-McCartney songwriting partnership has been romanticised or mythologised or overemphasised, in your opinion? Like, are people still too hung up on the whole, we used to write eye to eye on the bed with our acoustic guitars? Like, I think that's, it's, it's safe to say that it's not a myth, but that's definitely closer to a legend than the, than, than the truth. Yeah, it was actually something I had in my notes about this. Uh, it's funny that on certain albums they wrote together mm-hmm. and certain albums they didn't. But it did stop at a certain point. Like, uh, let's think. Hard Day's Night was a lot of that was John. Mm-hmm. Beatles was Sale. Babies in Black is a pretty 50 50 split on that one. Yeah. But what's funny is that Help, Help doesn't seem, seems like they wrote them separately on holiday. But Rubber Soul, they used to have daily writing sessions. And Paul would argue in his book. Um, what was it, many years from now, mm-hmm. he would argue that, you know, most of Rubber Soul was co-written, which may be, may be partly true, or two-thirds of it, perhaps. But then, funnily enough, as, as late as Sergeant Pepper, they were meeting pretty much every day for these three-hour sessions, mostly at Paul's house. Mm-hmm. It's funny, but... And then Revolver is one of the ones where they didn't seem to write anything together. But there's any co-writes on Revolver, are there? Except for She Said, She Said, which is... Supposed mm, to be a Harrison Lennon co-write, yeah, but never turned out that that way. Um, I get the impression he probably contributed a few, like John probably used him to finish it off, kind of thing, rather than it being fifty-fifty. If you if you took it took it back all the way to Eleanor Rigby, does George and Ringo get a songwriting credit on Eleanor Rigby as well? It depends on how these things are work are, are worked out privately behind closed doors, really. Yeah, that's right. And Mal Evans apparently wrote a couple. Which one did he write? Co-write with Paul, possibly fixing a hole, and he took a cash payment instead of writing credit. I think that's the story. Well, that is the long history of Paul's song songwriting career. Denny Lane after Wings. Oh yeah, I'll, what, 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 he sold the rights to Mullick Tire for like what ten p or something like that. It's absolutely <laughs> ridiculous. But you know, now she said she said it's an interesting one because of us as fans, sort of dissecting all these things. It's like um, a major part of the psychodrama that, you know, Paul uh, walked out of the She Said, She Said session. George did the harmonies. George did the bass. George had written a bit of it. But perhaps on one level, it was just uh, it was just abandoned on one day. They had an argument and one guy walked out. But because it's the Beatles, it's, <laughs> you know, it has like this great. Um, what's the word? Um, gravity. You know, it has this huge uh, magnitude sorry, to it. I mean, yeah. It, I mean, it goes back to that fantastic Paul quote. It's like, you know, in like 50 years, people are going to think Yoko broke up the Beatles by sitting on an amp. And he yeah. was so smart with that observation because, yeah, in the future, everyone is dissecting every little thing. 
just just just, yeah. just going back to she said uh, she said everyone's like mm. well George and John had done LSD together by that point so they'd now become the tight friendship in the group and Paul was being pushed to the outside and it's like all mm, of think that... no I don't I don't I don't believe that uh, I think that's true so oh let's have an argument about that <laughs> sorry not an argument a debate <laughs> so. Uh, I'm I'm very coloured by John's kind of harsh treatment to George post Beatles, like with the concert for Bangladesh and cock it, mm. cocking that whole thing up, and you know I I think it is George's quote to saying like you know John I did everything you wanted you know during during the break of my stuff and he said everything he wanted to say and did mm. all of that and I kind of feel like sometimes George because of his hero worship of John because that's another thing that people don't don't don't, don't really talk about like. Yeah, there's definitely some of that, yeah. You know, Paul, think... Paul found George, but once George joined the band, I think he definitely realised that John was more of his man. Yeah, I think they probably had, like, yeah, a kinship, but it didn't... I th- that's that's what I mean. I, I think the LSD and everything... In fact, you know, if you notice, they went on holiday together. I don't think John and Paul... They had, that, they had a trip to Paris when they were younger, but... Yeah, Paul was with Ringo for holidays, wasn't he? Yeah, yeah it's that funny split, isn't it? Yeah. Um, oh, sorry, you had a question about the... the... Their writing partnership. <laughs> so I forgot to answer that. Oh, I was just going to say, is there a single Lennon-Harrison composition, like, credited that way? Well, there's only Cry for a Shadow. Right. It's back in 61.
Yeah, because there's, there's yeah. the Paul and George one. Um, uh, it was on That'll Be The Day um, when they did the Buddy Holly cover. Um, in spite of yeah. all the danger, that's it. Yeah. yeah. So it's funny that in the early days they've got two uh, co-writes. Yeah. A John and John and George and a Paul and George, but then when they got moving, that never happened, did it? Yeah. And Ringo did still get a writing credit on Flying, which I've always thought was a nice little gesture. Yeah, maybe Dig It as well. Do they all get credited with Dig It? <gasps> that's a great trivia Sorry. question. I like that. Yeah, that's a good one. <laughs> no, and then his only other credits are like um, What Goes On, um... Uh, uh, don't pass me by the octopus's garden, I believe. Yep, that's right. Ah, Ringo. So, <laughs> yeah, well, the thing about the yeah about the songwriting partnership, I think the romanticization. I think there must have been points where they wrote something that became a classic, that they probably did think there was some magic going on, and there probably was. I think the two of them together, they obviously there's a certain point. We don't know when that stopped, but there's a certain point where they were just sparking each other, and. Uh, so it's probably not too romantic to say that they they created kind of magic. I mean, if you walk into Abbey Road Studio 2, which I've never actually done, but, you know, you'd have to look around that room and think of all the songs that were created in that room. So I think there's magic. I think I'd be really controversial. Like, oh, wow, this is where the Queenie Eye music video was filmed. Oh, wicked. <laughs> I'm quite controversial here. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to stick my foot in it. I'm not convinced that they would have continued to write number one after number one if they had stayed together i think you know they were already so far apart by the end and mm. unless it was some this is going to sound harsh again maybe if it's something in the realms of john divorces yoko and mm. there isn't that obstacle there uh, then perhaps maybe they could re like repair something but say if it's just the last weekend that happens john comes to the venus and mars sessions still and they mm. rekindle something. I feel like they're, they're, they're just going to be two completely different people, and they're and they're not going to be able to get it up again the same way that they were when they were when when they were younger. Yeah. Both of them would continue to write fantastic songs, but they would also both continue to write a bit of crap as well. And there's there's nothing uh, empirical that says that they would be able to continue that Abbey Road level of quality after. It's purely supposition. Yeah. Yeah, I, th I think like if they got together in '81, and then if obviously if in a parallel universe, if John had survived and he'd done the anthology, I'm trying to think like who was I talking to about this? But if they'd done the anthology, for example, mm -hmm. and they'd written a song together, I think it would have come out something like "Free as a Bird." Funnily enough, mm -hmm. <laughs> I don't think they would have done that song, but it would have come out sort of beatly. Or they might have ended up sounding like the Ruttles, funnily enough, <laughs> either intentionally or not. And that's not a bad thing either, because the Ruttles music is actually really good. I must be in love. Uh, yeah, fuck it, I yeah. fucking love the Ruttles. Or LA, they, may, they might have come out with some sort of Beatles, Ruttles, ELO fusion. Mm. I think, na maybe naturally, I think they would have fallen into writing Beatles music if they'd all got together. But I think John and Paul, yeah, I don't think... They got together in the 80s. I mean, they, all these 60s guys had a sort of dodgy 80s anyway, didn't they? Oh. I don't think, yeah, I don't think it would have reached the heights. Probably occasionally. If they'd done an album, there probably would have been two or three songs that people would have said, oh, that would have passed muster as a Beatles song. Yeah. yeah. I always found it odd that George had the last big hit, but that it was a cover with um, I've Got My Mind Set On You. I was like, oh, wow, the last real big Beatles solo hit. Was of them covering another song. I, well, I I always thought that was kind of a strange end to their success story. 
Yeah, John would have probably done that as well. Yeah, he might have covered uh, "Watch Your Step" by Bobby Parker, something like that. Bebopalula, yeah. Yeah, something like that. <laughs> and talking about that, those sort of hypotheticals again. I mentioned this earlier. It is just the most fun I have with this sort of stuff. Like you, you can give yeah. you can give me a podcast where two real scholars talk about chord progressions and why some notes work the way they don't. <laughs> but on the other hand, you know. I also love just saying, if you take Revolution 9 off, where do we put Hey Hey Jude? That conversation is equally as valid and, you know, mouth-watering content for me, I suppose. Maybe in the same place is the answer. Put Hey Jude where Revolution 9 was. Seven-minute epic just before the last song. <laughs> Good night following Hey Jude. That, that <laughs> might be the soppiest thing. <laughs> no, um, you never know. And the the transition from Re- Revolution Nine to Goodnight as well is possibly the the most stark two song contrast in their entire discography, really. But it makes Goodnight seem vaguely sinister, which it isn't at all. <laughs> but everything around Revolution Nine, like Cry Baby Cry, sounds vaguely sinister. Can you take me back? Sounds really sinister. It's terrifying, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> because they're just around that. I don't know what they did. I don't know if it's just being around Revolution Nine. I don't know if it's something in the way they recorded it. But there's a spooky, even before Revolution 9, there's a spookiness about that part of the album. It's funny. Hey, Sam, I've got my guitar here. One second, one second. See, I was actually about to ask you this at the very start of the, ep- the, the episode, but like, I know you're a musician, but the fact that you've got the cojones to play your guitar on your podcast, that is so brave for me. <laughs> like, I'm, I'm at the point of guitar, like, my dad was a brilliant guitar maker. Um, he made guitars for, like, Billy Idol and Thunder and stuff. And he's and he's left all these beautiful guitars in this house, and I can barely play a B chord, and I'm so ashamed of myself. <laughs> I really am. <laughs> like I cheat with my bar chords. I never do a full G with the four fingers. You know, I'm a I'm a I'm a I'm a sham. I really am. Hey, listen to this. This. Can you take yeah, Can you take me back where I came from? Can you take me back? Can you take me back where I came from, brother? Can you take me back? Can you take me back? Who can you take me where I came from? Can you take me back? And then they knew that they'd get a little bit older and a little bit slower. (laughs) Do we have to do a full rendition of Revolution 9 now? Because, I mean, I I, I do pride myself on the ability to sing along to any Beatles song with accurate lyrics, but I don't think I can do a full impromptu cover of Revolution 9 on the spot. It's been performed live, hasn't it? When I saw the bootleg Beatles and they were asking, "What, what do you want us to play? You know, lo- logically in my head, I was like, oh, I do Hey Bulldog, but something inside me just shouted Revolution 9. And <laughs> the guy playing Paul McCartney on, on stage just started going, number nine, number nine. And the whole crowd start, started joining in. I was like, yes, I'm surrounded by nerds. <laughs> yeah, I just wanted to say that I, lo- I love uh, the ballad of John Yoko. And even though it's John Yoko in the title, it has a, a unique place in it. It's the only song that's just got John Lennon and Paul McCartney on it. Yeah, and and I the just, twins. Just yeah, I just absolutely love it. Those harmonies at the end, and John's guitars are a tiny bit cheesy, perhaps. Those 
guitars coming in from left and right, but uh, all the rest of it is wonderful. Yeah. I love Paul's bass line on that. It's one, it's one of the classic. Paul, can you come in and put something interesting behind my chords, please? Yeah, they're going back to... Just going back to the 50. Etc. That the B side to that was uh, one after nine oh nine. Yeah, it would have been, yeah. been, been a better package. As I'm sure you're all too well of, you can't read anything about the Beatles, the Fab Four, or John Lennon without coming onto the subject of one Miss Yoko Ono. Mm-hmm. And oddly enough, she's a topic that I've not come across much in your podcast either. Maybe I'm just listening to the wrong episodes. But what <laughs> is your what is your hot take on Yoko Ono? Um. Can I summarise? Because <laughs> it could be a while. But uh, no, I think she was an artist in her own right. I think when they got together, it was totally genuine, and uh, they sort of Victor Spinetti put it well. He, when he met her, it was like it was like going back to childhood. You know, she got. I don't know if you meant she actually did this literally, but you know, she got some plasticine and said, "Let's make some plasticine models." It was a return to childhood and all the other things that John Lennon was doing, like LSD and and heroin. LSD is very much linked with childhood as well because, mm. you know, you can have flashbacks to innocence and, you know, you can suddenly think, oh, my God, you know, this world I'm living in is is so harsh, the adult world. And going back to the child world, either literally or or just metaphorically, is very nice. So I think – and Cynthia knew that they were right for each other. So I think that was totally genuine. I think they lived in each other's pockets from 68 to 73, and I thought it's perfectly natural that they would split up then and had, like, the seven-year itch after five years kind of thing. Mm. Um, the contentious, all the contentious stuff comes from about 70, well, 75 to 80, because we're still not sure how he felt about May Pang, about whether May Pang was a genuine lover. I mean, we know they had a physical relationship, but mm. was she genuinely, was he in love with her? She was clearly in love with him and then the yoko thing there's there's so many accounts now that the dakota was a was a kind of weird atmosphere and that they lived fairly separate lives i think it's an official story that they were they'd gone back to being deeply in love and everything was hunky-dory i think that's been dismantled so the truth is somewhere in the middle and As actually, is, yeah. yeah i've recorded a show called coleman or goldman and the ray coleman my my listeners are probably fed up of me saying this, but the Coleman version is very sanitised. The Goldman version is very very tabloidy and the worst possible representation of John Lennon. And the truth is somewhere in the middle. And we did a show. We didn't. It's hard to crack crack it completely, but we had a good stab. So I think they had a genuine relationship. Split up in '73, and then the last five years, I'm not sure they had such a great relationship. <laughs> right. Going on from that. Mm. So you mentioned that that book was the one that gave Lennon one of the worst representations. I've been going through one of Jeffrey Giuliano's books mm. about John Lennon, and the first few pages are almost solely dedicated to John's supposed history of bisexuality. Mm. I was talking, to, I was talking to my friend about this. Why? I don't, I don't want to say we and include you in this because you might not be included in this. But why are so many people? vehemently interested in John's sexuality specifically is it because of the matching yeah. image he puts out is it is because we feel like he we've been lied to about the the myth of John and Yoko the sexual couple you know like wh- where does this fascination of one of the Beatles willies come from 
Yeah, I've got to tell you, I do, I do sometimes question myself when I'm doing this. So I had um, had a guy called Robert Rosen on the show, and he's um, he started transcribing uh, John Lennon's diaries that John mm-hmm. Lennon kept from 75 to 80. Uh, it's a very complicated story involving Fred Seaman as well. But basically the diaries were stolen, and Robert had to reproduce it from memory, but he said a pretty good memory of what was in there. And these diaries, uh, there's some very weird stuff, like John Lennon would write down all these erotic dreams he had, and he'd write down uh, his masturbatory habits and things, apparently, okay? We've never known more of one celebrity's masturbatory habits than John Lennon, I think. I think so, yeah. (laughs) And I kind of think to myself, well, I find those kind of details interesting, but not because it's masturbatory, but because it's... Because it, I think because it goes against the official version and maybe I'm just always mm-hmm. interested when that happens and when the truth is elusive. So it is very strange. I mean, I'm I, I'm actually someone who's not really interested in celebrities at all like, and mm-hmm. just find the whole fame thing absurd. There's a very good series actually called Clive James Fame in the 20th Century and it presents a parallel 20th century which is all related to fame. And it really just dismantles how ridiculous the whole thing is. But with John Lennon, they're just, he's almost the only person. John Lennon and Marlon Brando as well. Very, I seem to be interested in the intimate details of their lives, but not because it's masturbatory, just because, I don't know, I, I can't quite reconcile it, to be mm. honest. Why am I interested? I, I don't know why I'm interested in uh, what he wrote in his diary. I don't know, because I've never met him. And I, you know, I'm always saying to other people, though, you know, celebrities are just normal people. I think, I think the thing is that John Lennon and Marlon Brando were fairly abnormal people. I think that's what it comes mm-hmm. down to. So there is interest there because you're not going to just find the same things that everyone else does. You know. I guess like a lot of it as well, people react very strongly to a situation where it has the old the lady doth protest too much methinks, you know, when mm-hmm. whenever that happens. And like since John rather famously did like assault people for like implying he was gay and stuff, that to me yeah. in the kind of vein of the modern American right-wing politician who denounces homosexuality and then yeah. two months later he's caught in a bathroom or something. It it just feels like that kind of thing, you know? Yeah. I would be surprised if he, like Mick Jagger, probably experimented. I think he was just... It's fine when Mick Jagger does it and Bowie does it and Prince does it, but with John, <laughs> it seems like there's an element of the old British fan gammon with the, with their bald heads and flat caps, just yeah. do not want John to possibly have looked at a willy or two in his in his in his life. That is just too incomprehensible for these people. Like if it had been Paul, who is constantly feminized uh, yeah. in the media and the way people write about him, there would not be this furore. Or George, you know, the spiritual one, the open one. But since John is meant to be this macho fifties greaser, which we all know just isn't true. Apparently, by all accounts, he was a real delightful softy and really charming to be to be around and stuff i think it was just all those things <laughs> that's, yeah, that's, like, that's the fascination probably he's all those things you just said at the same time <laughs> yeah, I, do, I, I do kind of say a lot at the same time unfortunately um, you, you can un- unpack it at your leisure <laughs> no i just think john lennon had um not in a technical way but multiple personalities uh, it's not multiple personalities multiple facets Mm-hmm. And those kind of people are fascinating for for better or worse, you know. When you hear like psychologists going back and they and they look at the psychology of the Jesus or something, people mm. are so going to be doing that about the Beatles in two thousand years time. Yeah, probably. 
So what's uh, let me ask you then? Can I turn it back on you? What's Paul's uh, psychology? What kind of person is Paul? Is he is he fairly normal? He's obviously more artistic than he's given credit for in oh, terms of having an artistic personality. So give me your description of Paul, if you don't mind. That'd be fine. Um, everyone seems to have a story bashing Paul about working with him and how he seems to be too controlling, this and that, blah, 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 or mm-hmm. suddenly he can be really nasty, you know, stories like shoving his cousin up against the wall and not not attending his own dad's funeral to go do the Wings Over America tour, stuff like that. You do, mm. you do sometimes start to see a pattern of someone who is almost um, compulsively workaholic, mm. and he's someone who finds happiness in work. He can definitely... Or not find happiness in work, but at least bury sadness in his work. I, I think I think we've seen that wow. time and time time and time again. Do you think? Do you think he's? Do you think he's angry at all? Do you think there's any anger? Maybe that losing his mother and losing Linda, perhaps. I think he's angry. Just looking at you. Because it doesn't sound convincing when well the song "Angry" that he did that didn't sound convincing at all. But I wonder if there is some anger. Is there anger in him? Possibly, but he, he wouldn't. He, he wouldn't let it out. I think he's only ever let out a real anger in a song like "Monkberry Moon Delight" or something like that. Oh, yeah, that's a good one. That. Where yeah. it's just him going absolutely insane. But then you cut forward to "I've Had Enough," where it's like you're talking to me in the back of my car and I just can't get anything right. And it's like, come on, Paul, this hasn't happened to you. Stop. So, st- stop. Stop trying to relate to me as a normal human. You're not. What was the one he did recently? Where he's on the piano, is it from Egypt Station? Is it? It's what, a sort of sad song. I about. don't know. Oh, I don't know. Yeah. Crows yeah. at my window, dogs at my door. That one. See, I'm going to sound like such a Lennonista here. <laughs> I I don't find it convincing. Did you find that convincing? And if you did, tell me. Tell me I'm wrong. I want to be corrected or. So <laughs> silly love songs. They have worked for Paul since the start of his career. His acoustic numbers have always been highlights for me. Techno stuff, electro stuff, always works with Paul. Mm. It, the ballads are what divide the fan community. The ballads really are. And do you get a lot of emotional resonance from them? I think that's what I'm interested in. Like, do you get? I find a lot of the emotional resonance for me is almost almost entirely different to to what everyone else experiences because I I didn't grow up with Paul. I, I don't have all the baggage. I just take a lot of these songs. Oh, I see. Yeah. As they come, and like for me, I've really connected with songs like Frank Sinatra's Party and Back in Brazil and Dominoes, all the kind of mm. weird ones that you could never put into a single or ever really put on a conventional pop album. But I, I like weird Professor Paul, you know, doing McCartney 2. I like that Hopelessly in Love Paul, and those are things that really resonate with me when he's kind of being knowingly lame. I've always found that to be a really attractive quality in someone... <laughs> If they know what they're doing is dorky, but they do it anyway, you know? Like, Paul is like that really good history teacher that you had at school that could make you care about the Bolshevik Revolution as if it was something that actually applied to your every, every, everyday life. That is Paul. Mm. He, he can make me really dig a granny tune or some Tin Pan Alley shtick. Whereas, like, when John does it on Crippled Inside, mm. even though that is one of my favourite John Lennon ones, I don't find it to be as authentic as when Paul's doing Honey Pie... You are me. You know. You know what I mean. Uh, I think this is interesting because this is, I think, where the where the the two camps where they lie is in authenticity. I think, and um, I don't. Know, I put myself in the John camp just because I do a podcast about him and I find him more interesting. So, I think authenticity, perhaps, we might have struck on something there. Do you think? Oh no, 
I don't care if what Paul actually means anything he's saying half the time. All right. <laughs> well, for, well, for example, there are some songs where, okay, a, a song where I don't think he's entirely genuine is like, uh, despite repeated warnings off Egypt Station. Yeah. And that's so. If you want to go by what the media says, it's the global warming song. If you want to go mm. by what everyone on on the internet says, it's the Trump song. And mm. it just felt so obligatory. Like, of course, Paul's going to have to do a song about this mean figure of hate. And it's like, this is not going to age as well as, say, any of the anti-Nixon songs or anything like that that John wrote. Although everybody hated them. <laughs> but uh, I know what you mean, yeah. And, like, People Want Peace sounds like... I mean, that sounds like a song Ringo wrote and gave to Paul. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to steal that. Is that so terrible? I'm going to steal that for my two Sorry, next appearance later today. To say. <laughs> oh, it's just like, you know, People Want Peace. It's just, you yeah. know, I can enjoy that record sonically, for sure. So when I bought Egypt Station, right, I got it on vinyl, and I was like, you know what, I'm going to be a good little boy. I'm going to listen to it on vinyl and not listen to it on Spotify for free, even though I have mm. it right here in my hands now. And I got about five minutes into the bike ride home before I pulled over and got my phone out and put and put Egypt Station on. And mm. when you put Shuffle on, it doesn't tell you it and you don't realise it until you're two songs in. So I put Station 1 on rather than just clicking play and it was still on Shuffle. Mm. So after Station 1, People Want Peace comes on. I'm like, oh, wow, this is really cool. Like, Paul's doing this, like, opening statement about, like, yeah. peace and stuff. And, wow, this in this context, it's kind of, like, really, an, like, anthemic almost. Like, Paul doesn't really do, do mm. this kind of stuff. And then when I realised it was, like, song 12 and I heard it in its actual proper context, I couldn't stand it. I thought, this is absolute <laughs> tripe. But I'm totally stealing that. It sounds like a Ringo song. Yeah, go for it. <laughs> That's for so it. funny. Now, before we move on to our actual topic of the day... Mm. I've got to talk about the stuff that I first heard you in, you know, in that kind of context, which is conspiracies, of course. Mm-hmm. I know that you've gone straight to my three-part "Paul is dead" uh, little little series that I did. Yeah. Do you have any thoughts on the whole "Paul is dead" thing? Is it just a hilarious side issue for you, or do you give it a little bit of credence? Not really. I'd, I'd say, well, I have one view about it. If it turned out to be true. I wouldn't be perhaps as surprised as some other people, but the actual clincher for me, I'll tell you what it is. You know the January 69 Get Back sessions? Mm-hmm. You know there's uh, they had the tapes rolling pretty much all day, and we've got, mm. I don't know how many hours, 400 hours of audio. I can't remember how much. All that memorial and, uh, stuff, yeah. Yeah, and someone has actually um, put together uh, all the conversations together. I tried to find it the other day. It was online a few months ago. Some kind person had done that, and I was going to try and plow through that one day, just the conversations without the music. Oh. And the thing is, there's constant reminiscences about the Liverpool day. So if it was, you know, uh, William Campbell or Shepherd, that would mean they'd have to have coached him and that every time they opened their mouth, he would know what story they were going to come out with. And I think, I mean, there's many other things. It's very, very interesting. I mean, the number of clues is just crazy. I mean, it's either, you know, if it isn't true at all, then it's a great... Um, it's a great feat of creativity to come up with all those ideas. This is very interesting. The other one theory I do have is that if you look at early '67, there's a, an interview with Paul where he's kind of seems a bit stoned and he's got talking about the counterculture. I don't know if you remember one. He's wearing like a light light jacket, like a white jacket or something, and he suddenly looks very very tall, 
And he does look a bit like a different person, but John as well, uh, in the Sergeant Pepper sessions, if you look at a picture of him there and compare mm. it to six months earlier or summer 66, just looks like a totally different person because he's just totally fucked up on, um, well, we're told LSD, but my theory that I've come up with is that John and Paul lost so much weight in those early times that it's possible through reading a book that Tom Hignardi and I reviewed um, called Riding So High, that Robert Fraser was bringing speed balls, which is cocaine and heroin mixed, to the Sgt. Pepper sessions. And in the Riding So High book, yeah, they say some of the Beatles on to I have a theory that perhaps John and Paul were doing those speed balls. So, you know, immediately loss of appetite and they're going to look like almost like quite different people. Because then if you look at them summer 67 when they went to Greece mm. or the all you need is love thing, they suddenly look like themselves again. But there was a period about six months where John and Paul both looked like quite almost totally different people. I've got some side by side photos, actually, on my mm. I was just looking at the other day. Couldn't but, a lot of that be as well like that? This all started during the period when they suddenly stopped being so public in the limelight as well. So mm. nor- normally, the difference between two Paul McCartney photos would, would be like Kim Kardashian today, like a couple of days at most mm. between publicised photos. But now you've got months and months and months. So it is going to appear all the more shocking when you do see a final difference. Yeah, it was the Sergeant Pepper party in May. You suddenly had these pictures. The Beatles were there and, and everyone saw these pictures. I mean, obviously I wasn't there then, but I... Is, it, is, is, that, is that the party that Linda took the famous like thumbs up photos at and stuff? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And John just looks, just doesn't look like himself at all. Just looks like this absolutely fucked up, wasted guy. But um, I think, I think the, the way they aged as well, because they had so much stimulation that mm. they could suddenly look quite a bit older. I don't know if Billy Campbell is supposed to be older than Paul or not, but they can look like suddenly different people because they, they become so worldly as well. Plus, mm. there's been a lot of trauma involved with being public figures like they were. So there's certain factors. But one of the things is that a lot of the Paul is dead people, they'll say, like, how his face changed shape almost. <laughs> but if you lose loads of weight and you suddenly lose all your puppy fat and you look very thin, you're, mm. you're suddenly going to see the jawline. It's going to appear a lot stronger. So I think there's reasons for a lot of that. I tell you what annoys me though. I tell you what uh, what upsets me. It's when you come up with a reasonable counter argument, and then it, and then the counter to that counter jumps the shark entirely. Mm. So the big counter is why would the secret cabal Illuminati guys mm. in the suits upstairs folks uh, allow more than one album to have the references on the front? Why would they continue to allow the references and the lyrics and the, you know all of that to be provided? Yeah. Well, Sam, it's because the hierarchy up up top they 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 like these demonic rituals to be public to taunt us. Yeah, I'm like, no, that's a side effect of paranoid schizophrenia. <laughs> I'm sorry, it's just it's not it's not the case, and it's it's yeah. theories to suit facts rather than facts to suit theories. Yeah, yeah I'd probably I'd say the difference between our attitudes perhaps is. I'm not. I'm not sure about. I'm not sure about it. That that's not true. That's all I'm saying. But nine. nine if you take nine. Look, if look, you take nine eleven. Yeah. If you take nine eleven, for example, mm. there's a good argument that says that if it was all a, a stitch up, why did they use Saudi? Why did they say that it was Saudis that, that did the terrorism? Why not Iraqis? Then they could invade Iraq, and that's a good argument. You know, I get you. There's loads of holes in lots of these things, but I think there's also a danger. And you seem very open-minded, so I'm not saying this about you, but I'm saying mm. about 
the public in general just rejecting conspiracy theories. The problem is that you are missing, the public is missing a lot of pretty important information. And what I think is a very, very important thing is to realize that what you're being told on the news every day, it's not that it's all lies, but there's no, there's no possible way that news agencies could collate everything that you need to know and present it, you know, hour after hour, as if it's, the only, as if it's the only thing that you need to know about in the world. Because there's all well, these I mean, loads of other you know, things, you know. I think, I think if anyone's interested in propaganda, you know, really Noam Chomsky is the man. Just if you plug in Noam Chomsky propaganda and just sort of read or listen to anything he says about it, he's a master of it. He knows about the media and things. I think the idea is that my, my stick on it, because I, I don't really spend any time on conspiracies anymore. I spent a few years on them. I got so far down the rabbit hole and I was, was getting so sort of depressed <laughs> what I saw was probably the reality of the world, you know, that I had to sort of let it go a bit. But things like media, I mean, the fact that the media, all you really need to know is that the media is managed. So you have to be a bit wary that what you're being, the things that your, your attention is being diverted to um, have been decided by like an editorial team. You know, it's like a magic trick, you know, diversion of attention. So... Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, even you in know? the Beatles story, you've got multiple smaller conspiracies. Lennon conspired with Yoko to get Alan Klein. A, you know, a conspiracy just means some people aren't informed of something that other people are. Yeah, really. Yeah. How many managers and uh, journalists would have been given 50 quid and told to shut up and let's not talk about the prostitute, you know? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's... it's That'd be a great book. <laughs> It's a game, really, but I think I still believe the public are, are far too innocent. I mean, if you look on, if you look at what people are talking about, either in offices or on social media, it's essentially what the mainstream news has just told them. Which is not, I'm not saying that it's not true, but I'm saying that that's not all there is to know. So it's a, I think of it a bit like a magic trick, you know, diverting your attention over here while they put the card in your pocket over there, kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, if only McCartney hadn't of, you know gone against the CIA and Operation Northwoods, maybe he'd still be here today. <laughs> I think Mal Evans was the second gunman on the grassy knoll. I'm not I'm not sure. But yeah, but, but my, he, my well, view he, on sorry, sorry, my yeah. view on Paul is dead contradicts my view on a lot of other possible conspiracies, you know. So um I'm with you I'm with you on that one hundred percent. Hey, you know, mm. Paul is dead could be a psyop, you know, to to discredit other it's conspiracies. Strong, yeah, it's a straw man. I mean that that there's beyond doubt that there are conspiracies which are given more information, more um, prominence, like Flat Earth and Bigfoot, to divert and to keep the public innocent of the fact that conspiracies, more or less, as I said, like conspiracies in court, in um, corporate boardrooms, whether you want to call them conspiracies or secret meetings, that's the thing. A lot of it is language as well, and I'm a language teacher, so I know about the power of language. You know, one man's administration is another man's regime. Yes. You know, we bombed Gaddafi's compound where you actually bombed his house, but compound makes it sound <laughs> more scary and more like some evil guy from the other side of the world. So, Bin Laden was neutralised, yeah. Yeah, yeah. That All kind of thing. thing. Yeah, very, very interesting. And uh, But another thing is that the, the supposed date of Paul's death was November the 9th. But I saw that guy, Mark Devlin, I don't know if you've ever come across him. He strikes me as someone who's looking for things. Because suddenly they've changed the 11 and the 9, and suddenly Paul died on September 11th. Hey, isn't that convenient? 
But all those things that you've said, that, that they say conspiracy people uh, fit the facts and don't want to believe in, you know, anything that goes against. If you if you flip that around, um, there are, I, I find it disbelieving that there are people who read the news and believe that they're being told everything they need to know. I think that's just as lazy and just as misguided. Mm -hmm. So um, I'm sure, sure we're on the same page to some extent, but... I did want to make that point that most of the stuff that people say against conspiracies can easily be, you know, if you called people mainstream theorists instead of conspiracy theorists, you know, as the other extreme, if I gave them a kind of a um, pejorative title, like, mm -hmm. you know, naive mainstream believers, imagine if that was a phrase that was continually used, <laughs> the world would be a different place. Could you imagine that? You're just another globist, mate. You're just another globist. <laughs> So anyway, now that we've gotten to know each other a little bit better, I think it's time that we got into the original conceit for this episode. Yeah. And for those people who've been, who've been listening, have probably read the title and thinking, when are they going to get around to it? Well, we're going to get around to it now, folks. Um, we're going to talk about 1974's A Toot and a Snore. Stop who doesn't know stand by me. Arm in the air. Okay, okay. And we all know it, right? Just turn the fucking vocal mic on. McCartney's doing the harmony on the drums. Stevie might get on it there if he's got a mic. All right, all right, that's it. Just like more vocal, treble. Still dead in the earphones. The land is dark And the moon is the only thing we see No, I won't be afraid No, I won't be afraid Just as long as you stand, stand by me Stand by me, stand by me, 
I think the elevator pitch is that it's the only existing recordings of John and Paul McCartney playing together after the breakup. That's yes. all you mention if you want to sell it. Mm. Uh, if you're going to be an honest salesman, you'll say um, this is a happenstance recording of a drug-fueled jam session. Mm. We have Lennon, Paul, Linda, Harry Nilsson, Stevie Wonder, and then uh, Bobby Keys and Jesse Ed Davis, who are both kind of in the John Lennon camp already. But uh, they're like his recording band around this time, aren't they? Yeah, more or less. I think Keltner was generally around at certain times as well. Um, apparently 25 other people at the, in the rock and roll sessions. But uh, yeah. yeah, so um, this was an, a jam recorded during or around the infamous Pussycat sessions? Uh, I think it was on the first night, actually. I really? Right. I think so. I think that's right. I'm not terribly sure of who Harry Nilsson is. Possibly people in my audience might not be. What, what was Pussycats and who is Harry Nilsson to John Lennon? Uh, funnily enough, I've never actually heard Pussycats all the way through, but um, Harry Nielsen, I mean, he was a songwriter himself, although one of his most famous, probably two of his most famous songs are Everybody's Talking, you know, Everybody's Talking at Me, that one. Mm. That was a cover. And then Without You, you know, Can't Live If a Living Is Without You. That was written by the Badfinger guys. But he had a great voice, but, you know, he was a party animal, and him and him and John... I think they would have met late 60s, early 70s. I don't know when they started hanging out, but then there was Ringo, of course, was tight with Harry. But, you know, I, just, I think Harry Nielsen, he lost his voice, of course, famously around that time during those Pussycats sessions. I think they're probably pretty wild. I think the height of John's wildness seemed to be early 74, didn't it? But um, I think with Toot and a Snore, like, I think the fact there's Coke going around, again, that, that's probably... Uh, some innocence on the on account of the public thinking, oh, wow, there was coke going around, uh, you know, 1970s American rock session. Wow, what a revelation, you know? I think yeah, it's, it's fairly like... uh, commonplace, to be honest. And... <laughs> this is one thing that always annoys me. Paul's this squeaky clean image guy, and it's like, are you are you telling me he wasn't like Tony Montana in Scarface, surrounded by coke during the Wings Over America tour? Who knows? They're the biggest rock band at the time. Even the smallest rock bands had the sugar powder on their nose. You've got Jimmy McCullough in the band. You've got Jojo Lane as a drug dealer. Mm. Uh, you know, I think I think that's really been downplayed. We're not going to see in the upcoming five-part documentary about Paul. Definitely not. I mean, I, I read a I read a book about. Um, it wasn't about Paul. It was about the music scene. Mm. Uh, the rock scene and I mean they're just you know not everyone's doing it there are I'm sure there are people involved in rock who've never done any drugs or just very very soft ones but I, I think you know it was just around all the time and I, 
you know, so much evidence for that. that... Well, I think more blame is in roadies and the enablers more than anything. You know, these are the mm. people, because, like, you know, unless you're Paul McCartney trying to get into Japan, you don't carry your own drugs. <laughs> so, you know, it's, you know, Fleetwood Mac were going to thank their drug dealer on uh, rumours before he mysteriously died. Right. So, Pussycats and John, this period, this is the infamous Lost Weekend. Yeah. I hate to just say again, what's your take on this? But mm-hmm. you know, I want to pick your brain. This is our first chat. Was the Lost Weekend really as non-PG and debaucherous as made out? Um, there were probably, I don't know, there were probably like 10, 15, 20 nights like that. But over a year and a half, that may not be that much. Mm-hmm. I think... I think it just just all gets magnified because it's John Lennon and uh, yeah, I, th- I think that's what it comes down to. It just gets very very magnified. But I think he had the ability. One of one of his great abilities was to sort of switch from one state to another quite easily. So I think he could go from doing nothing, perhaps doing nothing for a few days, and then being very productive and suddenly getting sober. I think one thing that. Um, are you going to talk to Ed Chen, aren't you? He told me about was uh, this thing called the tilt mechanism. I think George had referenced where the Beatles all had an ability where they'd gone too far to sort of say, right, I need to get my head together. So I think they were probably all constantly, Ringo's more drink, the other three, 
various drugs at various times that they were kind of constantly balancing one thing or another. So I think John, it's probably four to five months perhaps where they probably had a few good nights out or bad nights out, depending which way you look at it. But he he always had the ability to produce and I think there was always a sensible person underneath. So they saved him. It's just kind of weird that like, you know, the Beatles media can romanticise a period even when Lennon punches a woman in the face in public. Like, it's weird that even that part of his life can be glossed over in that kind of rose-tinted way. Yeah, yeah, I'm saying that, I'm saying that the, yeah, the quantity of excessive behaviour possibly wasn't as much as people think. But definitely, I mean, there's, if you want to go into that, I mean, there's, if you believe May Pang's book, I mean, he tried to throttle her. Mm. I, I think... He had a. I'm saying about this tilt mechanism. I think with John Lennon, the tilt mechanism was more with drugs, because if you, I mean, okay, alcohol is a drug, I know, but if you take those just for a second, take those two things as separate. I think drinking was something he, he couldn't control, and I think he could yeah. have easily killed someone. And he even said it in the most sanitized interview, the Andy Peebles one, two days before he died. He said, you know, I could have killed someone then. So, I think. The quality, quote unquote, of the debauchery was, as in the low quality of the behaviour and the darkness of the behaviour, was probably more than the quantity. Let's let's say that. Yeah, like all of the stories around John are around drink, especially like in like Hamburg and and stuff like that. Yeah. Like you never hear of John being a nuisance between help and rubber sole. He's just got a joint and chilling out with with Cynthia, you know. Yeah, lots of munchies. That's how he got so fat. <laughs> lots of the uh, trips to the late night garage to get hobnobs and things like that. You know. Yes. Uh, <laughs> there's there's a great shot on the band on the run poster where you see a cardboard box that they've brought over to Lagos with them, and it's just full of Guinness and McVitie's biscuits and tin beans. And I'm like priorities, <laughs> priorities. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> just going back to May Pang. Mm. Yoko chose her for John. In a weird way, what's all that about? Yeah, okay, again, miss, uh, unfortunately, this is the point from about 73 to 80. This is the point where I'm just on very shaky ground saying that I know anything. <laughs> mm. I have a fairly good handle on his life up to about then, but who knows? I, I believe it doesn't seem like he's going off the reservation at all if he's, if he's with someone that's kind of pre approved, almost like they are just to quote friends on a break. I think there's decent. I think there's a decent argument to say that perhaps Yoko wanted, because she started having an affair with a guy called David Spinoza. I think played on both. And apparently Harry Nilsson, according and, to some books as well. Oh, I never heard about that. But yeah, I mean, yeah, it's. Yeah. I guess anything went. So who knows? But I think, I think the truth about that sort of split they had in '73 was no more than than a married couple who've lived in each other's pockets. Two artists probably just were sick of the sight of each other. And I think he needed someone to take care of him in the sense of getting things done, practical things. Mm. But obviously the fact that, I mean, he did like sort of Eastern women, let's say. I don't know if you can use the word Oriental now, but that that type of woman. Might beat that out. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Um, But I I get the feeling that I think actually she did offer him um, like a a real girlfriend, like an, an adult relationship rather than a kind of relationship of dependency i think there's a good case for that Hmm. and i don't know i don't know what yoko's up to i mean we hear about she was making all these phone calls um elliot mintz i think is a very very dubious 
he's basically paid by Yoko to give the official version and to give yes. the version that makes her look the best. So I wouldn't take what he says with a great amount of credence. But I, th- I think she obviously knew May Pang was going to go with him and she probably thought there was going to be some physical relationship because she was planning to do the same with David Spinoza, perhaps. But I don't think the emotional side, I don't think she was expecting that, perhaps. But what do I know? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it all goes back to that same comment that almost every single Beatles podcast ends with, we weren't there, we weren't there. We weren't there, we don't actually know. This is my best guess. <laughs> but at the end of the day, we're trying, just trying to entertain the listeners, aren't we, really? And they, they seem Trying to like our shows. Is the key word. Well, they seem to like our shows, so we must be doing something right. So... <laughs> So, a, a toot and a snore. Recorded twenty eighth of March, nineteen seventy four, at Burbank Studios, Los Angeles, California. It was never intended to be released, folks. You can hear someone at one point going, "Let's just start recording." Mm. However, in nineteen ninety two, under whatever channels they operate in, uh, of a label called Mistral, uh, mm. which is an outfit out in Luxembourg, released it on both.
It's only about 20, 30 minutes long. It's really not that extensive at all. And the list of contents is as follows. You've got a toot and a snore, which is basically John literally offering Stevie Wonder a line of coke off what I hope is a a copy of Band on the Run or something in my own little head cannon. (laughs) Then you've got what's described as bluesy jam. Then it's studio talk. Um, John and... They tried to play a little uh, song called Little Bitty Pretty One, but they can't actually remember any more of it, which is quite funny. Mm-hmm. Then you have a rundown of Lucille, and I thought, oh, wow, Paul's going to sing Lucille. No, no, John's going to sing Lucille. Paul is just on the drums for this. Are you sure? Are you, are you absolutely sure that's John singing? I'm pretty sure it is. Oh, um, okay, from, fair from, enough. From what, from what I've been able to find out, Paul is just on backing vocals, and you hear a bit on the third version of Stand By Me. That's all I, I heard of him. Oh, yeah, yeah, I could definitely recognise him on that. Yeah, I know Paul's Lucille. I've listened to many early Wings gigs, and right. it, it like John's very like, much like Lucille, whereas Paul gets that last note to be much larger. Lucille, like that. Oh yeah. Get back where you belong. And they they never do the first uh, verse any of the Beatles because Lucille, the original version, doesn't start with 
Get back where you belong. Bon, 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 bon. Uh, like the third verse or, or something. They always go straight to the good bit, which I always appreciated. <laughs> Next, you've got Nightmares, um, which apparently, according to the notes here, is a version of a song called Sleepwalk by yeah. Santo and Johnny. Yeah, it is. Do they shout, start shouting out Nightmares or something? Because that is definitely Sleepwalk, yeah. That's a great yeah. song. Either on the... Highlighting my ignorance there. Then we move on to three versions of Stand By Me. Um, the first two is mostly just on going, I can't fucking hear it. <laughs> it's just it's just him shouting. And you can probably picture these poor studio technicians who are just there going, John, you're just coked out of your head. The, the levels are fine. So basically, we, we, we get two ruined versions of Stand By Me, and then we get a pretty complete third attempt right at the end with Paul sharing the vocals. He's... He sounds more, yeah. The John Lennon thing about getting angry—that sounds—it sounds more like he's had a few drinks. I know, I know there was coke going around, but mm. I feel like that would be more of a a drinking thing. But uh, yeah, I wasn't there. <laughs> Drink and coke, not the best, uh, yeah. not the best bed bedfellows. But they when you most... said it was being released, do you actually mean an official release in another country or just on on the market, black market? This is something that I want to get into mm. because. I want to have a bootlegger on. I want to. I want to know the inside of this world. You know how how does it work? Where did the, where did the acetates come from? Where did the original recordings come from? Mm. How do they release it without being sued by Apple? Mm. Like I know Luxembourg is a country that has more companies than people, so that's probably how they're going to get around it. There's some like weird, obscure European tax dodging loophole laws. I'm guessing that's how it works. And then people physically just drive over borders with cassettes and CDs and pay off toll booths and stuff. <laughs> uh, I don't know how any of this actually gets into someone's hands in the UK or America. It, it seems like a really weird chain of events that seems very ineffective. And that's mm. probably why you had, you had to pay hundreds of pounds and dollars for these releases back then. I just want to say I'm so thankful that I live in 2020 with the internet. I, f I found this for free. My access to mm. all of these bootlegs is unparalleled, really. Like, I am able to absorb all of this culture that people had to live through over years. And mm. I just get to absorb it in a few minutes. And it's so exciting for me. Me 
I think the fact this was recorded, I mean, again, you have to think of it just as a bootleg. And I don't think it's that bad, actually. I, I, there's a great vocal on Lucille. I mean, it's just, it's just a sort of fun run-through. If they meant to do anything with it, they'd have spent probably four or five hours and got something together, you know? Mm. I just don't think it's that bad. <laughs> Were you aware of this like um, much before we started like researching this, this episode? Was this a, like a notorious bootleg? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's been around for a long time, yeah. Yeah, I just listened back to it the other day. Mm. I love the art, the artwork on it as well. Mm. It's a great like facsimile of it's Revolver and the songs that John and Paul gave away, isn't it? It's a like a mashup of those two. Yeah, but uh, yeah, there's some, there's some uh, yeah great pictures on there. It's Harry Nielsen on the front there sipping a Brandy Alexander, or whatever it was. Yeah, Toot and a Snore. <laughs> it's a great title. Yeah, good title for yeah. our podcast as well, right? You know that they wanted to call it a toot and a snort, and mm. someone, someone in the legal department, no, can't do that. Even though we all know they're doing it. Oh, sorry to interrupt. Sorry. No, that it works because uh, I think they found it quite boring, like to listen back. <laughs> no, you know, because yeah. it's just a, just a little yeah. run through. You know, it's just given extra significance because Paul was there, basically. Yeah. Well, I think a lot of people's relationship with this bootleg is entirely based on how they were sold it originally. If you hear that, oh, wow, there's a post-1970 recording of Lennon and McCartney, there's going to be a lot of hype surrounding that. And unfortunately, I don't think this album has lived up to the hype with anyone on this planet, unfortunately. <laughs> you know, everyone goes, oh, well, you know, maybe, maybe they're going to do this or that. Maybe they'll do a Beatles song. No, they're not. They're not. Mm. Uh, you know, Paul's not even doing a, re- a real lead vocal it's 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 mostly a Stevie album for me. <laughs> just just listening to Stevie, like kind of keep the session, you know, kind of moving mo- moving forward with his uh, brilliant key playing. Apparently, Linda is on um, organ as well, and there's a, a really a, a really cute little little moment where like Lennon's like, Mister McCartney, I can't hear Stevie. Can can you get your wife just to to, to turn it down or something? Oh really? Say <laughs> that? Yeah. I guess um, a lot of people, their relation to this album, there is just the idea that there is some sort of McCartney-Lennon reunion. Mm. And this is one of those situations where I'm like, this doesn't prove anything, folks. This doesn't prove that their relationship improved. This doesn't prove that they were friends at the time. Uh, you know, these are these are two men who are great with the media. Mm. These are two men who know how to play a room. Lennon himself says in a later quote, there were just basically 50 people looking at us and we were all stoned. Mm. I don't think uh, having a few lines, lines of coke and a whiskey proves that they've patched anything up at all. I think a lot of it is just people trying to find some sort of redemption at the end of the Beatles narrative. You know the you know the redemption that maybe anthology was trying to offer but never quite filled. And unless people can go to the grave being content with the knowledge that John and Paul repaired their friendship before 1980, mm. it's it, it, it's almost manic, really. Have you ever seen um, Two of Us, the TV? Oh, film? I love that film. Yeah, we we had a clip of that. We did a we did a show about John Lennon on film with Ed Chen actually, looking wow. at all the depictions. I love that. Do you like that film? Jared Harris is so good in that movie. I think they both are. I think that you really feel like they're mates. Like the Paul guy yeah. has basically an Irish accent, but it just doesn't doesn't bother me. You know, it's just I love it. Since Liverpool is that kind of port with Ireland, you can somewhat justify it. You know, you can kind mm. of do some mental gym, gymnastics there. I guess I'm I'm a, I'm a bit like one of these dark, pointless, gritty reboots that we see in cinema so much. Like. 
I've kind of got a dour pessimism when it comes to the Beatles. Mm. Like, I'm I'm not going to believe that the Let It Be sessions were this wonderful field of roses experience that Peter Jackson's going to give to us in a few months. I think so, yeah. That's been put back, hasn't it, to, to, to next Fuck year? Fuck it! It was, it was meant to come out the day after my birthday! <laughs> I'm so angry. I'm so... Keep it together, Sam. Keep it together. Uh, that's really annoyed me. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> Especially since Peter Jackson pretty much made the three best movies of all time. I'm a massive Lord, Lord of the Rings fan. And it's, it, it is so fitting that he would then do a Beatles uh, film, seeing as how the Beatles were going to do a version of um, Lord of the Rings, possibly yeah, with Stanley Kubrick at one point. Mm-hmm. Nice little bit of symmetry there. Mm-hmm. Also, though, so that no one's really mentioned, if you watch the bonus features for uh, The Two Towers, I believe, mm-hmm. Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers, the second film, they recorded all of the music with Howard Shaw, the composer, at Abbey Road Studios. Oh, right. Interesting. And there's footage of Jackson in Abbey Road talking to people. And it's like, that's probably where it started. That visit right there, that's probably mm. where the first balls started rolling. What year did uh, Two Towers come out? 2002. Oh. Because they were, cause they were, cause they were going to change the title in, in, in America. Mm. So they must the, have been uh, already shooting it before September 11th? Hmm, nothing in there. <laughs> I'm sorry, mate. <laughs> no, I mean... I'm Tolkien, sorry. you would, like no, dude. If you take two pages from the Lord of the Rings and you fold them down the centerfold, you get the Owl of Moloch. So, <laughs> have you seen the thing where if you uh, if you uh, rearrange a pound, if you fold a a one dollar note or something, it looks exactly like the two towers. Is one one burning lower down the other, and then if you turn it over, it looks exactly like the Pentagon. Yeah. Finding, I loved finding out about Paradolia. I'm like, oh, that's it. <laughs> right. That literally explains everything. <laughs> It's all pattern recognition. That's what we are as a species. We are the pattern recognisers. We also construct reality, don't we? It's not objective, it's subjective. So we see what we want to see. All of us, I mean, I think. Oh, I need, I need a puff of a joint after a statement like that. <laughs> Bloody hell. Let's go back to Toot and a Snore. Come on. <laughs> yeah. Going back just to my point that this wasn't really the coming together of minds that we'd like to think it was. Um, mm. I've got a quote here from Paul in an interview for Rolling Stone in 86. Mm. And this is him talking about him trying to get back with John in 76, a couple of years just after this recording. Mm. And he says, I happened to be on my way to the Caribbean. So passing through New York, I rang John up. But there was so much suspicion, even though I came bearing the olive branch. I said, mm. hey, I'd like to see you. He said, what for? What do you really want? <laughs> It was difficult. Finally, he had this great line for me. He said, you're all pizza and fairy tales. Oh, yeah, I remember that one. Yeah, it's a good he's one. Sort of, yeah, he's sort of become Americanized by then. So, so the best insult I could thought was say, oh, fuck off, Kojak, and slam the phone down. Really? Is that a direct quote? Yeah. So the Yoko haters are just, are just going to be like, no, he's under the thumb. She said, you're not allowed to go out and play with, play with your friend. That's up in the air. I can't, I can't really comment, comment on that. I think as he stayed with May Pang in the last weekend, I think him and Paul 100% would have done something together. Yeah. That's one thing I'm fairly sure about. Well, Paul is the reason why John wasn't at the Venus and Mars sessions, because he, he got him back together with Yoko. And that happened literally right. like the day before they went to uh, New Orleans and started doing all of the, session, the sessions there. So, again, mm. we were so close. We were so close. And that's what makes, the, again, the, the, the story feel all the more... Um, exciting um, 
These aren't the right drugs, though, to be establishing a new friendship, though. <laughs> Class A substances. <laughs> like, if this was a two and a joint, mm. I reckon, you know, we probably would have had better music as well, actually. Or a joint and a snore, perhaps. A joint and a snore. That wouldn't have worked. Well, they just got high and then fallen asleep. <laughs> Yeah, they, they would have just balanced it around and probably had a very level-headed conversation. Um, <laughs> yeah, maybe you've got to get maybe, the balance right, yeah. Maybe a bit, you know, maybe uh, a toot and a tablet, maybe, and mm. they, you know, they do a bit of ecstasy and they start saying, oh, I love you, bro, we should totally start a business tomorrow, that kind of vibe. I mean, if they'd had something really, you know, happy-go-lucky, feel like Dr. Feelgood kind of stuff, they might have even said stuff that they wouldn't have really been able to record, like... Mm. It's it's actually quite shocking that there's nothing too damning on this. Like the yeah. most damning thing we hear is John offer Stevie a line. Like we don't hear him go and mm. then start singing as or do I do or anything like that. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, th- I think it was. I think with John and Paul, I think that there was so much water under the bridge that they'd had that ten years basically of living in each other's pockets. As he had five years. There's a pattern there, of course. Well, the other people that are living this breakup through them, possibly more than they are. Like, I think I think we all know John and Paul were thinking about each other a lot more than they would ever let on. Yeah. But just like the the idea that, oh, you and Paul are meeting up together. I thought you weren't talking. And then, bam, it's going to come back to them, isn't it? Sure. Whereas they, they may have forgotten it themselves. Yeah, I think they just, perhaps in a funny way, they're, they're, the close friendship had already run its course. So it wasn't really... Uh, perhaps when they met, it, it, perhaps it was quite superficial, perhaps. You know, oh. they'd done all the deep stuff already. They'd been through the 60s together, and I think perhaps... What about the night we cried? Yeah. Yeah. All that stuff. I believe that, that that happened in 64. They had a night when they got drunk and, and talked about their mothers and stuff. Mm. I just, I don't know. I think, you know, sometimes childhood friends, essentially, I mean, they didn't go to the same school, but they were school friends or teenage friends originally. Mm. I think... You know, I, I don't. I don't think there has to be a heavy reason that they didn't grow together. That they grew apart quite a bit. Or they just well, this this is interesting, right? Mm. This is this, this is bringing up anxiety in me now. Me thinking, oh my god, what if my three closest best friends were like Paul and John Lennon? Then the idea that this might just fizzle out in a year or two, and perhaps it's that kind of latent anxiety is in other people as well. Maybe they don't want to think that their great friendships could just go up in smoke like that, and then they never talk to each other again, and then one of them dies, and then it's never reconciled, you know? That's something that people could be thinking about them, themselves, you know? Well, I liken it a bit to backpacking, actually. If, you, if you've ever been backpacking, you spend you spend a week or something in, intensely... You spend 24 hours a day or all your waking hours with people that you haven't met, and there's loads to know, and then after about four or five days, you've exhausted it, so... Perhaps as a perhaps they kind of exhausted their relationship, you know. I think they would have got back together, but I think I think like when when Paul makes an album, sometimes people say, well, they used to, not so much anymore, but they used to say, oh, uh, why isn't Ringo the drummer on this? And he's like, <laughs> well, why does he have to be like, <laughs> why does he have to be the drummer? Like, like if they don't work with George Martin, didn't work with George Martin in the seventies. Oh, John, why isn't George Martin the producer of your album? Well, why should he be? <laughs> I think, uh, yeah, it just just seemed to, again, the public, whoever they are, you know, <laughs> a certain public just just seemed to think that they need to be manacled together forever. But obviously, not so much anymore. But I'm thinking more 70s and 80s, perhaps. Yeah. Duty, you know. 
And one interesting, actually, from Tootin' a Snore, about the, how about this? Paul's actually playing Ringo's drum kit, isn't he? There's a great quote about Say that. the story, yeah, yeah. Apparently Ringo comes in the next day and he says, well, McCartney's always messing up my drum kit. Yeah. Like, that's so funny, like, the fact that... Like, I'm not sure if you've ever been to a school reunion. I mean, I'm yeah. only 27 and I've already been to one. <laughs> and everyone reverts to exactly who they were yeah. when, they went, when they left school. I mean, listen, listeners out there, this might be quite shocking, but I wasn't exactly the coolest kid at school. <laughs> and, um, like, I have a little bit of a stutter now, but imagine me at 16 trying to talk to pretty girls. It was a mess. It really was. <laughs> yeah. and, the moment, and the moment I went back there... I suddenly turned into stuttering quiet little Sam again. Mm. And so much of that, you hear that in a lot of George's stories, especially like hanging out with Paul and stuff. They just go back to that big brother, little brother relationship or the competitiveness. And it's hard to shake loose those chains. Yeah. I suppose in the case of Ringo, that that Ringo drum thing, that perhaps was a bit more charming because it's kind of, he's remembering Paul as he was. But almost as if you know the last five years hadn't happened. But yeah, you're absolutely right. Yeah, reverting to to type, and it's rough for George because in the anthology, when I when I kind of revisited it a little bit because it's 25 years this year, isn't it? Um, it kind it kind of just feels a bit fake, and that George isn't quite there. I mean, he oh, was yeah, there yeah. because he'd had financial issues. We know that. Like that's the reason. <laughs> that's the reason yeah, that's the he reason. was he was in it so much. But yeah, it's it's so it's rough on him because you know when they made the anthology, Paul's, let's say Paul's fifty three and George is fifty two. You know, there's nine months between them, but they're both in their fifties. So what's the difference? It's George, the well, he'll always be eighteen months older than me. Yeah, it's the, it's yeah. The quote, and it, it wasn't even eighteen because only nine. Yeah, it wasn't even that much, or eight eight months. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, it's been several hours by this point. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and you know what? Uh, behind, behind the scenes, uh, two, two separate days worth of recording as well. Um, the million dollar question here. Mm. Is a toot and a snort an essential listen for a Beatles fan? Uh, it's just a sort of curiosity. Listen to it once for posterity, basically. I mean, I don't think I can't really talk about it as a release because I think, it, you know, it, I'm sure it wasn't sanctioned, sanctioned release. It's just, yeah, it's just a curiosity. It's like like many kind of studio run-throughs that happen to be recorded, really. It's just an accident of time that it happened to be the last time they were together. I don't know. Yeah, it feels a bit like uh, Disney buying up all of their old stuff. It's like, you know, they'd they'd like it to be back under the Apple belt, I imagine, just so they could take it off the market. Mm. Uh, Unfortunately... uh, the, the horse has already bolted. We uh, we've already listened to it to it now. It's out there. There was a I'm, again. I'm glad I didn't have to pay for it. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> there was a track called uh, "Too Many Cooks," which apparently had Mick Jagger on vocals and John produced that. And I don't know when that was produced, but I think it was '74. And if the listeners want to and you have have a listen to that, I should listen back to it as well. "Too Many Cooks." That that's what it might have sounded like if they'd made more effort. If they hadn't just been having a studio run through. So. Yeah, uh, mm-hmm. this is also around the time Lennon's producing Bowie as well with Fame. So yeah. it is not outside the realms of possibility that they could have pulled the fingers out and done something a little more substantial here. Definitely. I mean, like, mm. even like uh, Hiroshima's Sky is Blue has more substantial material than this. Right, right. Yeah, I think they just, perhaps the weight of their past was just a bit too much. 
that'd be my conclusion. I think what kept them apart was that. Um, perhaps Yoko as well, I don't know. But uh, I, I think, if I could end with just a little bit of speculation, I think they would have, uh, John would have got on board with the anthology. They might have done a few things, but I think the weight of their past would have been too much, I think. And, and like I said, I think the thing that came up earlier when we were talking was that maybe too much water had gone under the bridge and they, they, they'd been through such an intense relationship. I think that's what happened with John and Yoko, to be perfectly honest. When they split in 73, they had five years in each other's pockets and perhaps they just exhausted it. And that it became perhaps like a lot of long-term marriages, sort of a marriage of convenience with some affection. <laughs> mm. Yeah. I think we've pretty much come to the end of my notes, at least. Yeah, thank you for doing this, dude. This has been really fun. Uh, uh, like I said, at the very start of the show, Elena needs a McCartney. I didn't find out till we started recording that you'd already done stuff with two legs, which kind of broke broke my heart. Oh, well, but, it's not out yet, though. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm speaking to Tom later today, so I will chastise him. Say hi. I'll say hi as well. And, um, I shall. Can I... Yeah, I was thinking a good title. Toot and a snore, colon, the ballad of John and Paul, or the ballad of Lennon and McCartney. Yeah, you don't mind me doing well no we could do uh, different versions if you want but uh, it might be nice so I think that would be a good combination of uh, your title and my title that would be cool love it <laughs> love it we'll find a way of mashing it up so the listeners get both of our both are you saying we can work it out we can yes <laughs> life is very short and that is why we're going to end <laughs> end the episode as soon as possible folks thank you so much for listening to Paul and I think thank you for listening to Glass Onion on John Lennon this, is, this has been really fun, Anthony. I can't wait to have, to have you back on again soon. Yeah, let's do it. Yeah, I'll um, bring my A game. <laughs> no, and no, sing that out. Sing another, another song. <laughs> and you can sing another, another song for me, for me as well. I'll, I'll be looking forward, forward to that. Yeah, I'll spontaneously bust out the guitar. Yeah. <laughs> All right, thanks a lot. Right. It's been uh, yeah, loads of fun. Take care, folks. Bye bye.
Sergeant Pepper. That's on the other side, stupid. Oh, sorry, big Frank. Thank you. 